Welcome to this week's episode of the Back to Back Films Podcast. This week we'll be covering Ingmar Bergman's The Magician and Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, opening ourselves up to the wonders of movie magic and deception in movies. This being our first episode, I just want to talk about what the show is, the general format of the show, and the things we want to try and cover. But first, I think we should introduce ourselves. Whoever wants to go first. Um, I'll, I'll go. Well, that was uh, quite the introduction there, Keith, that you wrote. Uh, nice job. Uh, I'm Jacob. I'm a editor. I work in advertising and just kind of sit in my home uh, in my underwear and just hang out. So that's that's who I am. <laughs> nice. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Byron Gouet, and um, yeah, love films, love watching them. Uh, also, eventually, love you know maybe someday make some as well. <laughs> and I'm Keith. Uh, my name is Keith, <clears throat> the host of the podcast, and uh, really big into movies, obviously. Um, but I'm really more interested in movie production and kind of movie history and just how things get made. Uh, kind of brought ourselves together here because we all kind of have our own interests in movies. Obviously, Jacob is kind of on the editing side, visual effects side of things. And Byron just got the Tarantino-style encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge. And like I said, I'm interested in just movies and how movies get made. So the goal of the show here is to discuss how movies get made. The majority of our discussions will be about the behind-the-scenes of films as opposed to, like, formal reviews. Uh, generally speaking, we'll be focusing on uh, being informative with one major topic being discussed each episode. Uh, so whether or not you have any idea how movies get made or if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're someone who has an extensive knowledge of uh, filmmaking, we're hoping that you'll learn something new every week when you listen to us. We're trying to cover everything we can. Um, obviously, we can't cover everything in every episode, but we're going to focus on things from like script writing or the lack of a script in a movie, uh, what the roles of filmmaking are, production techniques, going all the way to post-production, how distribution works, um, and how films leave a legacy and what that means. Um, for example, like a post and pre-pulp fiction era type discussion. Uh, we'll discuss specific shots and sequences, how those get made, how filmmakers accomplish the different tricks that they do, and definitely try to frame each movie in a historical context. Uh, we'll try to define techniques and terms, too. Um, we don't want to seem like we're, this is 101, like you're an idiot, but we want to make sure that the things we talk about are understood. So every week we're going to cover two films. Uh, there's a range from, you know, films like Fire, which was made in 1901, to the most recent films that come out. Uh, we're planning to cover Ghost in the Shell, uh, for example. And I'm hoping that we give you a variety of films to watch every week and some that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have watched otherwise. That said, in order to discuss the films to their fullest extent, we recommend that you watch them before listening uh, because we will be spoiling the movies uh, just to make sure that we can give the most extensive discussion that we can on them. And towards the end of the episode, we'll include a short kind of opinion piece where we discuss what we thought of the movie overall. And as always, in the show notes, we'll include other movies that you could watch that are similar to the topic we're discussing. Is there anything you guys want to add to that? I just want to say that um, 
you know, I'm excited to learn a lot more about movies that are, um, you know, kind of well, by, by well-known directors who are like foreign, foreign and, and stuff like that. Cause I'm, I'm not really that familiar with all that stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm just excited to watch a bunch of movies and just, you know, learn something, you know, cause, uh, I, you know, I love, love, love Little Mermaid. You know what I mean? Like, it's a great movie. But, <laughs> and it changed, it, it, it changed a lot, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn about, uh, something else, you know, any other movie really. Definitely. That's, that's the only one I've seen ever. I mean, definitely one of the bigger goals of the show is for us too, in exploring movies because, you know, there's a lot of movies that I wouldn't watch otherwise. So giving myself a reason to watch some of these is going to be good. I think just for our own filmmaking knowledge too, and trying to make movies. I know that, you know, that's why when, when we were talking beforehand, I brought up ghost to these guys and cause I know that they've never seen it. Yeah, right? that's right. I've never seen ghosts. See, I know, no, every gets such a bad rap. But you do, <laughs> you do it, or it's we like have to. You yeah. guys got to learn. You See, my thing is something. like musicals too. Like I don't really watch musicals, but there's a lot to be said about musicals and you know how musicals get made and what mm-hmm. the point is and you know what you do when you're singing and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting. And then obviously, like right. you know, one of the bigger Oscar movies this year was a musical. So obviously, they're important. So I'm actually yeah. yeah. They're really doing just stoked to to just talk about film in a conversation like setting, mm-hmm. you know, Sorry. instead of just watching a movie, you know, typically I'm by myself, you know, just watching a movie and then I don't have anybody to, you know, mm-hmm. talk to um, about the film and discuss theory or even, you know, production or anything. With So I'm just kind of stoked to to hear and share, you know, thoughts and stuff just about films and like uh i'm just picturing you just like sitting with a big popcorn like looking around like close it's 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 sort of popcorn is ice cream you know (laughs) (laughs) that's great all right well if you guys this is a spot i think we can open up if there's you want to talk about how your projects are going uh, type, you know, kind of a space to check in, stuff like that. Self, self promotion type. Yeah, I mean, stuff. just a. I think there's. I think we just should have a spot here where we, you know, because we're like between the podcast, you know, I'm starting the documentary project just to kind of discuss ourselves to a little yeah. bit, um, and probably. What's your documentary project? So, uh, I think you guys know Glenn Bristow in yeah. town here. Um, he connected me with. So he's a comedian. And um, he introduced me to this other comedian named Nathan. Um, and the thing about Nathan is that he's par- uh, paraplegic. So uh, a lot of his comedy, and he uh, had an accident which caused him to be in a wheelchair. Um, so a lot of his comedy is focused like around. Accident? No, it was a skiing accident, actually. Oh, no um, shit. Wow. And yeah, so his story is really interesting. And he uses, he's, it's been a while since then. Um, he's, he's been in a wheelchair for a long time. Um, but he's one of those people that wasn't born into a wheelchair, right? So he had to learn how to do that and experience that and stuff like that. Um, and now he uses comedy as kind of an outlet. And he's got this really interesting, sort of like self aware, semi. I don't know, self-deprecating type of, you know, humor. Um, Like, for example, there's a local place here called the Green Frog, um, and they do comedy shows. Well, excuse me, they don't have 
uh, wheelchair ramp to get up to the stage. So he actually has to be lifted onto the stage to do his comedy. And is that a bit in itself? Kind of, yeah. Like when he's like trying to get up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It kind of it is. Jesus. And I guess that one of the nights he was doing that, um, his brakes for his wheelchair went out so the whole time he's doing his set which is like his first feature set he's worrying about rolling off the stage this whole time so he's got these really interesting problems that he has to go you know deal with obviously being in a wheelchair um and stuff like that but he's also like uh still open to skiing like that didn't like traumatize him to the point where he just won't do it so like i'm well how does he how does he still ski i guess he's got specialized skis that for like a wheelchair yeah how sick is that so at at some point we're planning to like go up to the mountain and we're gonna shoot him skiing on those because i'm i'm curious i have no idea dude that's it sounds super cool dude how does that even work i don't know i have no idea that's why i'm super interested yeah i think it's gonna be super cool so that's crazy yeah so it's pretty early on in that process we've got a couple of sets recorded um but you know we're kind of just forging forward on that so it's gonna be this this might be this might be a dumb question but does he does he do it standing or is he like sitting no i think his wheelchair actually straps into a mechanism that is so it's like yeah so he's like sitting in his wheelchair and it like kind of attaches yeah like the wheels fly off you know i i and and you know you put skis on it or some shit. I don't something know. like that, or the wheels. <laughs> I think the wheels <laughs> lock into. I think they're skis that are like a predetermined locked uh, distance apart. Oh, and the wheels so lock. The wheel into is it. like the shoe. It's like the shoe yeah, of exactly, your foot. exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Ah, okay, interesting. So yeah, what, I, that's neat. That alone, I'm like, dude, that'd be such a yeah. sick. Like we go up there, maybe stay a night on the mountain or something, and then just get some good filming in. You know. Yeah, dude, that'd be sweet footage. You should show me that after you, because uh, I just, I just want to see how it works. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about you know his character too. You know his his yeah. personality and how he's gonna, how he's going to you know um, uh, handle all that, especially you know having it filmed. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, is he? I mean, he seems like a kind of guy who's who's cool with having like the camera on him or attention on him because that's you know he does this stand and yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah, it seems like. It's like a good combination of like someone who's willing to open up and, but about something that maybe people aren't really allowed to look at. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? Because when you walk by the street, when you walk by someone who's in a wheelchair, it's like, where do you, where do your eyes go? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Totally. Like it's yeah. like trying to figure out like, you know, you're as a kid, you're like, don't look at that. You know, you you know, as you're when you're a kid, your mom always says that. Which is kind of messed up, you know, like 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 don't look at that person or you know like it's it's like but but they're humans too yeah no but it is interesting don't look at that human I think he's okay with the attention he's like he's really okay with his situation you know and he's okay with the attention because obviously he's on stage but it's like with anyone unless you're a really trained film actor anytime a camera's on you it's it makes you a little more self-aware but you know it's i think he's one of those people that will like work past that so you know and i think with a documentary too it's like you're always going to have that hurdle at the beginning where you're kind of just getting used to the fact that this camera crew is following you you know so yeah he's he's super chill and his personality is good and it can carry a story i think and i the story his own story itself is is a lot i'm stoked to see that that's Mm -hmm. cool wow it's gonna be a lot of fun i think yeah that's cool yeah yeah that's awesome yeah, so you were in Vancouver, right, Byron? Yeah, yeah, the last two weeks I was filming up in Vancouver. The first weekend was just kind of like a passion project, slowly trying to build, like, this, doing scenes, kind of a couple scenes at a time. 
and then hopefully make like a I don't know maybe a 15 20 minute short out of that nice. it's kind of like a right now it's kind of like this uh woman revenge kind of film and she's kind of against these like yakuza dudes nice. so it's kind of it's it's probably going to morph into maybe something maybe a little different than that and then the other project is uh for uh, a local studio down there um that uh that likes kind of our style so they wanted us to help shoot um a little sequence for them um, for a proof concept film. So no one's going to ever really see that except for people that are interested in the, the actual uh, 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 concept, and, and then which will, I think, you know, Like maybe, the producers and whatnot, right? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, those are kind of the people you want to see. Right, for sure, for sure, for sure, for <laughs> sure. It's funny because it's not like a personal project, so it's not it's not like my baby, you know, but it's, it's cool that they... they they liked our style and they wanted us on board to help with just the creative aspect of it just at the beginnings you know beginning stages and i'm sure if it does get picked up it's you know we're not going to be involved in the the creative aspect of you know of the actual show or anything but um to we're just kind of basically i think just going to do a whole bunch of these proof of concept films for them um it's a, and, it's good experience. Yeah. Plus, you get to try a bunch of new shit. Right, you know right. I mean? Like, which is cool. Just experiment. Because, like, yeah. I, I'm totally like not used to working with like actual actors or people like that actually really, really, really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean, it was just unreal. Like this last weekend, you know, like this last weekend, like I was working with this guy named Lux. He's a cinematographer. And, um, he's also a director, um, and he's just, you know, he's been on set so much that just things are so natural for him you know like we were having some issues with some lighting and he's like hey you know put just put the light outside the door and then close the door halfway shut and it's like wow of course that would work but like (laughs) you know he's just like he's got ideas so quick Mm -hmm. that it's like man like this i don't know so cool and same with the actress you know the actress is just super comfortable um you know like hey what what do you think about this you know bringing up ideas to the table which is great you know um it's really amazing when people are like familiar with what they're doing how the dynamic changes it's totally unreal and it's like in you, when you work with people better than you 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 only grow mm-hmm. you know which yeah, is exactly. awesome so yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah if you're the smartest person in the room then you got to get out of that room right you know what right I mean? right like, you got to keep learning and man some some people just know so much shit and it's so impressive oh yeah yeah it's i remember you saying something jacob too that when you started working more professionally um the difference you noticed with having like just an art director like having someone who is specific about making choice like artistic choices you know that when when you're when you're making low budget films typically you have you know you're wearing so many hats right but when you're really when the budget starts going up and you can actually start hiring real professionals like there's a lot of people who can help make your decisions, you know, like you're still making decisions as a director and stuff, but yeah, which is really cool. And it's just more collaborative too. Like I just love the collaborative um, aspect of it. If everybody is, has the same goal, yeah. you know, when there's no ego and stuff, which is great. Like it's awesome. The, the interesting though thing too, is like we were working for no money. We we're just doing favors just because we want the experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which is awesome, but I'm sure things will get a little different too when money's involved. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be different. <laughs> That's you when know? the egos come out. Yeah, it's right, true. Right, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck, man. <laughs> I don't actually know that. 
if that's true or not. So I'm just making shit. Well, up. it's a stereotype that you know people in Hollywood are narcissistic with big egos. Right. So you know, half the battle as a director is just controlling your star. Yeah. You know. So I mean, I think like you know, for me too. Like, I mean, it would be great to earn enough money where I can make a living doing what I love. That's the goal. Um, and I honestly think like, you know, I think I don't know. I guess I'm just one not to be super, like, egotistic and, like, start, like, you know, controlling a set and stuff. I just, it's not my personality, but I know, you know, it, so those people sometimes end up being the ones in charge, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of money at stake with these movies, so the, right. those types of people you kind of... If, if you're an investor investing in movies, you want someone who's able to control stuff and make sure you're you know because you're when you're burning ten thousand dollars a minute yeah, yeah. you know you want to make sure stuff is getting done so oh, man i can't imagine i couldn't and you know ev- everyone is scared when they're making a movie too like everyone so when you have that one person who like <laughs> seems like they know yeah. like what's going on and is making decisions it's like okay yep. let's just put it on this guy he knows what's going on let's leave it at that and then if the movie sucks then you can just blame him, right you know? <laughs> or her or her yeah. uh so it, you know i don't know it's I feel like it totally attracts those types of people who it does. Right. want to, like, be in charge and be, like, the guy or the, the person on set who, like, knows knows it all and can do it all, you know? Totally. I mean, when, at, at the end of the day, film is a business, right? And business t- attracts a certain type of person. You know what I mean? It, yeah. There's a certain stereotypical person that it, it attracts. So in any major business where there's millions of dollars flowing through, it's going to have that same type of person, regardless of what the product is, right. you know? Yeah. So. Sure. Um, sure. But that's it. There's always bad eggs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> always. No, th- uh, what you just said actually reminds me of this interesting interview I watched uh, with Kevin Smith. And the one thing that stuck out with me uh, that he said was, as a director, um, you always want to have an answer to everything because you're the person that everyone is looking for, right, towards. So if you if someone comes to you and it says, okay, do you want this dress to be red or blue? And you're like, well, I don't know. Or like, you know, or his example, I think, was, well, what do you think? Like, that can instill in people, like, this sort of, like, doubt, you know? Like, does this guy really know what he's doing? Should we really be following him? Like, you know what I mean? So... That was one thing that always stuck out with me in my own directing is like if someone comes up to you and that's why I always over prepare, you know, beforehand, because if I want to make sure that any possible thing that I can think of, I'm going to have an answer to. And regard if someone comes up to me, I make sure that like <laughs> I'm on it. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to make decision. I'll make the decision. So I definitely need to work on that. I need to I need to work on like just being able to make a decision super quick. But there is something too like. Also, I mean, there's some directors who will ask, you know, like in, in a sense of like, what, what, what do you think? Because as you said, it is a collaborative uh, form of art. So sometimes you do want to get someone else who like if someone's given their life to costume design, they're going to know more about the intricacies of how to make a costume, the colors that work with the costume and stuff like that. So you want to have their opinion, you know, yeah. so like it's a weird balance of being like sounding like you don't know what you're say what you want and what you're doing and trying to get information from people it's funny that you know the director of uh, sicario and prisoners um 
who's also you know doing the new the later the new Blade Runner. Um, how do you say how do you say that I think guy's it's name? D- is Denis? it Denis Denis Villeneuve? I think. Oh, okay. I, Something I, like I that. Watched the Oscars and I was like, oh, Den- Dennis Villeneuve. That's how I say yeah. it too. Yeah. yeah, I think it's and he's, he's French like, Canadian. Denis it's Villeneuve. Like, is that what it is? It's Denis okay. Denis Villeneuve. I think. Villeneuve. Okay. But um, Villeneuve. He. Uh, yeah. I was like, what? He. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think we should, I think to a degree I think we're okay with cussing too, but you know <laughs> we don't want to be like fuck this, fuck that, fuck everything, but how are we allowed a certain amount? Like two? I I mean there's no specific rating system, it's just our decision, okay. but you are, know. Are we swearing or not? Yes. Should we, should I think swearing's okay. okay. I cuz I just do it. So. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Gonna we're going to be talking. I mean, some of the movies we're going to be talking about are the extremes of cinema. Right. So to talk about people being like skull fucked to death yeah. you kind of need to be able to have, to have that language yeah so yeah. i think it's, i think it's okay i mean obviously we're not trying to overdo it you know but yeah i think just fair warning right. to listeners that they're you know we're gonna be open about what we discuss yeah. and like like when we talk about the little mermaid and we talk about ariel's scene where she's completely naked might have a couple swear words <laughs> uh, for that. Uh, we should saying. talk about compare it to the book too, because apparently the book was like way more dark and way more uh, graphic. Dude, we could do a whole series on Disney, like the, the, what what it's based on versus what the Disney product came out. In fact, we could probably just do one episode because it's all the same story. You know what I mean? It's all like dark, disturbing, and then it goes into like this. Like bright eyed, like big eyed, like blink, 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 blink thing. And, uh, you know, just like a charming kid story. It's great. Every time. It works every time. It's it's amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, let's discuss our two films then. Um, <clears throat> so our main topic for the week, again, is just an introduction to movies, move what we call movie magic and kind of sort of the fundamentals of making a movie. Uh, so the first film that we watched is Ingmar Bergman's The Magician. Uh, it was made in 1958, and the film stars Max von, I think it's Sedow, right? Yeah. Max von Sedow, Ingrid Thulin, and Gunnar Bjornstrand. Um, it was produced by Peter Becker, Kim Hendrickson, Fumiko Tagagi, Takagi, sorry, and Jonathan Terrell. Um, it was shot by Gunnar Fischer, edited by Oscar Rosander, composed by Eric Nordgren, uh, production di- design was by P.A. Lindgren, and costumes were designed by Man Lindholm and Greta Johansson. Uh, so, I think pretty good, man. It's better than what I. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, so I don't know Very if impressive. that's if that's something we should do week to week. Though um, I don't know if that's too wordy. If that's too many people, I, th- I think it's good because I, you know, I, a movie is collaborative, and so sometimes I struggle with the idea that this is one person's film, like this is the director's film, because there's all these other artists who are like taking part in it. And I, I like I like being saying like, oh, here's the guy who or girl who did blah 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 for this movie. I like kind of just highlighting all the as many people as Yeah, we and can. it's cool because like yeah. in a lot of directors they use the same production designer, the same cinematographer and the right. same yes. you know which is yeah. kind of cool to see. Nolan, <laughs> Nolan yeah. and Fister, Scorsese and yeah. uh Thelma Shoemaker and yeah. Tarantino yeah. was using the same editor, but I think it changed. Yeah, she she well, she passed it away. Changed, yeah, oh, yeah, she passed she away. So oh, they, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, Hateful Eight was the first one with right, out, and I I think it shows. Honestly, Me too. That it's a new. Editor. It is. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think it's I personally think it's important to name off uh, these people because and I mean, we talk about the director and I talk about we in the general sense is the director is always referenced, it's always their movie and I think a lot of that has to do with um the fact that if the movie fails, the director takes all the heat, right? Like everyone is yeah. so behind the scenes, or, or the writer, or the writer. Sometimes or the, I feel like the writer takes heat. Um, the actors will take some heat too, but they can always be like, "Well, I was just there. He kind of sucked, whatever." Right? So the director has more public responsibility, and on the same token if the movie does really well then they kind of deserve that too because at the end of the day they are up there what we call above the line um which we can discuss a little bit later specifically what above the line and below the line means uh, but they're up there as the people that are at the top of managing the movie you know they're there almost every day on almost every shoot um if unless there's like some second unit stuff sometimes right. like the pro- or if they get kicked or if they get kicked out, out yeah, yeah. Like, sometimes like you know the producers though are too you know like the, the, can kind of ruin the film you know like totally. suicide squad right yeah. like you know um uh space out on the director's name um but he you know his his film was longer quite a bit longer and a lot yeah. darker and then they yeah. basically kind of took it away and they kind of re edited reshot ta- but it w- you're t- you're talking about fantastic four <laughs> suicide squad Oh, that same thing happened with Fantastic oh, wow. Four. Oh, I imagine, yeah. yeah. You're talking about the I new didn't one? I that happened with Suicide Squad. Yeah, the new Fantastic yeah, Four. That's yeah, that's because I remember because when they released the first trailer for that Fantastic Four, um, it had a certain look to it and certain color scheme. And then when they released the second trailer, uh, which is the almost exact same one, I think, uh, they changed the entire color scheme yeah. to give it a whole new vibe and feel. Yeah. Right, because yeah. it had that greens, and they wanted to. Or it, no, was it was orange, like orange first, and they, and they switched, switched it to green. green. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but sorry, Byron, I totally interrupted. Oh, it's you totally cool. What, what were you saying? <laughs> All right, do it. Do your bit. But yeah, no, it's just interesting, like how you know sometimes you know producers um, can also ruin, not necessarily ruin, but like um, no, they can ruin. They, well, they can definitely <laughs> they can ruin. ruin the movie. Uh, but they can change, so you know, can things you know, like just like David Fincher's, you know, Alien film, and you know, yeah. and, and you know take away final cut and stuff like that so it's it is interesting it's a it's it's a cool um i think it i think it would will be important to just list all the I, the people involved i also i i think you know you have uh scorsese's directing wolf of wall street um, i'm i'm saying this in uh opposition to your point byron about um taking away final cut and stuff but you have wolf of wall street which is a movie where scorsese's that was the first scorsese's movie where he had final cut i believe um and i think i think it was the first one and i i think that scene where he's crawling up the staircase that's like 30 minutes long when he's on uh those drugs or whatever what uh what are they called i can't quaaludes yeah he's on quaaludes and it's like 25 minutes and it's like Someone needed to just wrangle him and say, look, dude, like three minutes. That's what you got for this. Like, it takes too long to to get there. Um, So I I feel like having, you know, oh, that was my phone. Shit. Um, Where's my phone? Let me silence this. I feel like uh, having a, a producer or something like that is really like one of those roles that you don't see. But when it's it's done awful then it is like really apparent that's, you know what i mean it's so funny because like i'm in the complete like uh, 
opposite for, for the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> like for me, that's like my. I think you love that. Scene? I think that's my, oh. my possibly my favorite Scorsese film. Just because it's so unhinged. Oh, no, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to rip. No, 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 no. no. But but I like I like how like that whole sequence is so long and how it's its own little movie within the bigger movie. It is you know, like scene. and I because I, yeah. it it the it is a little overboard, but it fits the theme of the movie. You know what I mean? Like uh, because of the you know, um, but that's just but that's just me. But yeah, I totally understand about how like. I mean, I okay, if we're, if we're going to talk about Scorsese, I think his last film, Silence, it was a little overindulgent, I think. So, yeah. you know, like, it was a great film, but I think, you know, it's two and a half hours long, which I love long movies, but I think there were some sequences that were maybe a little too, um, that could have been shortened, you know? It's an interesting thing to talk about because... You, you're both right where producers can ruin the movie, but producers can also save a movie um, because when you're a name, like I've heard this that uh, with Spielberg and you notice it with George Lucas as well. That's why he gets a lot of flack for the first, the prequel Star Wars movies um, because that's where he had his most directorial control, right? And those are considered, I mean, most people won't even talk about their existence, and, and, and right? He, and he, and he, wrote, he wrote them because he, he wrote the first Star Wars, but um, he had other collaborated yeah he did and his wife helped save that film apparently in editing um and told him to relax yourself a little bit um but yeah because i don't know if you know this but he had space crops like he was like a space farmer luke skywalker oh yeah totally so yeah he had crazy ideas like 30 minutes out of the front end of it because it was all like World, is, it was just weird. Well, yeah, you can watch his funny. movie right before that, TA, THX eleven thirty eight, I think, yeah, yeah. and you can see a lot of those yeah, weird we should watch uh, that. sci-fi indulgent ideas. We should. It's an interesting right. movie to talk about. Um, but then you watch American Graffiti, and it's like, damn, this guy can do some fucking work. You know? What yeah, I mean? exactly. You guys seen American Graffiti? That's fucking. I actually yeah, haven't it's seen. It's actually a pretty good film. Yeah, I liked it a lot better than the THX one one whatever it is. <laughs> oh, I think it's one one three eight yeah, or yeah. something. Um, but right, it's interesting because I've heard that with Spielberg, he's a very his okay. Spielberg has made so many classic movies that uh, you know Jaws, E.T., Poltergeist, AI. His filmography is some of his you know so he's made more movies in like the top 20 that you could think of than like any other director right so when you're working with steven spielberg how do you say no to him right so he's it's it's this interesting balance where well spielberg says he wants to do it so let's just do it but you know his more recent films have kind of been lacking because he's had almost too much control in things right where like you know and I think Tarantino is kind of probably along those same lines too, where there's probably producers who work with him that are like, yeah, that's your Tarantino idea, but we should probably, you know, change it just a little bit. Just, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you can't, there has to be a a balance. And and that's definitely when you're a, a director whose name sells a movie, you know, you, it's like Nolan too, you know, um, he can almost make yeah. any movie he wants right now, and people are just going to give him a bunch of money and let him do that's, it. That's that's what Inception was. Yeah, you know? exactly. It was like, hey, here's a bunch of money. Have fun. You know no, that's I mean? exactly what it was. He walked so. in, and I think Interstellar more recently, um, it's very rare for a director to have so much pull that he can walk into any sort of meeting, walk out with a $200 million budget for a completely original idea. I mean, that's yeah. entirely unheard of nowadays. 
I know it's crazy, <laughs> which also leads to an interesting discussion that I think we should talk about at some point too, which is this idea of uh, nowadays with franchises, uh, the idea of throwaway directors. Yeah. Have you heard of this term and this idea? What is it? Throwaway directors. So um, these big two hundred million plus dollar uh, budget movies, for example, like Pirates of the Caribbean, um, these franchise movies, the they temples. bring. What's that? You're talking about temple movies? I get it. Yeah, I think yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah, temple. Temples. Okay. So uh, the idea is that you're spending so much on the movie itself, on the special effects, on the actors in the movie, that pay a cheap director, pay a director, a quote-unquote cheap one, who is fairly unknown but still has some uh, experience in directing, you can pay them a whole lot less money so that you as a studio can make more money and if the movie tanks, that's cool. We send out that director, bring in the new one. If the movie's good, well, you can keep rolling this guy in, and he's never going to have enough power to say, well, I'll make your next movie for you, but I need a $20 million raise. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's this weird like fa- uh, catch for like a safe safety net for studios these throwaway directors that's kind of that kind of happened with jurassic world didn't it because colin trevorrow yeah i think so he was kind of like he what did he do he did um he did some he did monster right oh no 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 that's oh you're talking about monsters did he do monsters no that was um Wow, I can't think of that guy's name. Uh, but he's the guy who did the new Godzilla movie. He went from doing monsters to Godzilla. And now he's... His yeah, jump. that guy's doing Star Wars. But who did... Is he doing Star did, Wars? Yeah, he's doing epi- the episode 9. Episode. Yeah. Yeah, what did Colin Trevorrow do? Looking what him up. this guy's name? Oh, he did Safety Not Guaranteed, and then he did Jurassic World. And now yeah, that's a big oh, jump. Nope. He and now he's doing the Jurassic World sequel, and no, he's doing Episode Nine. Gareth Edwards, that's the guy who did Monsters. Gareth Edwards, that name sounds familiar. Didn't he just? He do... just did Godzilla. He jumped from Monsters, so he jumped from a five hundred thousand dollar budget um, in a film where he literally single handedly did all the special effects by himself to doing Godzilla, which was probably like what one hundred fifty million. Now he's doing King Kong. I think so. Oh yeah. I think so. The new King Kong movie that's mm-hmm. coming out this week. Yeah, so it's just, it's these fairly unknown directors that they bring in, you know, yeah. just so that they can recycle them if they need to. It's really interesting. interesting. It's really it feels interesting. like it feels like such a huge risk because I mean, when you're making these big movies that are like a franchise, it's you know, look at um, you know, some some of them fail. Like Fantastic Four failed. You know what I mean? Uh, which is yeah, funny because, like, didn't the first one fail too? I th- well, I none of the them. First, I think the first. One? You're talking about the original ones with like um, Chris Jessica Evans Alba and Jessica Alba. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they made money, but they just, but they just weren't critically well received. They weren't like an insane amount. I don't think the second one because they made three. Well, didn't oh, they? they? I thought they made two. Did they make they two? The they one? made the one, and then they made Silver Surfer. I thought Did they, they made one another one after that. Oh, I, I don't know. But then, yeah, they, they tried to do their it. reboot. Well, then they tried to do their reboot, and the reboot didn't, you know. Didn't work. Yeah, obviously. Which, that's, that's a case where, like, the director got locked out of the edit bay. You know what I mean? Like, they're like, you can't, you can't work on this anymore. And the studio 
or producer or someone else took over and finished the movie. And you can see, I went and saw this in theaters because of this actually. And you can see this weird shift in the movie where like, it's like dark and like has this really interesting tone to it. And it's not very superhero-y. It's like Chronicle because it's the same guy who did Chronicle, but it has that similar tone. And then there's a point where it turns into let's sell toys. You know what I mean? Like it was like, they're, they they started having these one-liners, and he's like, it's clobbering time, and they, they just, ugh, dude, it was Well, that's the point. Weird, I mean, that's right in the middle, li- just totally shifts. That's literally the point of franchises, though, because when you're building a franchise, you're not building a movie. You're building the stuff that you can sell around the movie. That's that's the bigger money yeah. for you, right, is the, is the brand, the merchandise, and everything else that goes along with it. So that's why the new Power Ranger movie is, is the way it is, too, because they're trying to play on the nostalgia of people buying the Power Ranger toys, and then they're, they're making a movie, but the movie's cool, but what they're really banking all their money on is all the toys they're going to sell. All the toys. Yep. And that's what George Lucas was famous for um, getting with Star Wars is all the merchandising rights like he he got that right off the bat and then he was good to, good to go uh so you know he figured he figured it out before everyone else yeah it's interesting because like i feel i don't know there's such a different huge shift now towards like independent filmmaking you know there's more independent films being made now than there were even 10 years ago mm-hmm. um so it's interesting to see that this is happening and we have so many really good directors that are like actually working in that industry, you know, like Harmony Corinne and stuff that are actually having, you know, Jeff Nichols and, you know, these directors that are fantastic that are actually having money. Even Scorsese is having a hard time getting their films produced. Spielberg and Lucas both said that, like, when you can't get a Spielberg movie into theaters, like, you know, that's why you keep saying cinema's dying. Basically. Yeah, it's just crazy, you know, but <laughs> God, like, but I yeah, just. I hate hearing that. Honestly, it's the such cinema dying to me. Yeah, no, that Spielberg's like, oh, I can't get a movie in there. Shut the fuck up, dude. You made like he's made how many movies has that guy made? And he's whining how about many how good he can't movies get a movie has in? that guy You're made? Steven too. Spielberg. He's got like eight projects lined up that aren't going to happen. That he just has his name attached to him. Shut the fuck up. Seriously, well, see, that's like, the thing I about Spielberg. Yeah, but see, look, Scorsese though, he his stuff is more like. I can see why he's having more of a hard time because he's, you know, he's darker. He he doesn't, you know, you know. Um, he's more artsy, like right. he's, he's not he's not like, hey, let's get the family together and watch yeah. TV. But actually, uh, like he did Hugo. It's not really like that anymore. Yeah, which Hugo. was which was great. But yeah. I think that was a movie that he kind of. I mean, I know he really liked it, like wanted to do it. But I also think he kind of did it so he could generate some more money and friendliness with the studio right. so that he could make, you know, other other things in the future. But Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street, how much money did that make? That made a lot of money. That it made a lot it of money. It actually made quite a bit of money, but it was so, actually all independent, which is insane. But awesome. How do you, yeah, you can't make a movie like that without it being independent. Like, it'd be really hard to get a studio to fund. Yeah, yeah, no, they, yeah. According to Wikipedia, it's the budget, which Wikipedia budgets are not accurate, so it's just a rough estimate. It says the budget is $100 million, and it says the box office was almost $400 million. That's a pretty good return on investment. So, so it likely doubled its money, because yeah. the whole total budget yeah. was probably 150 to 200 yeah. And I'm guessing that's probably including, you know, DVD sales exactly. and stuff, too. Exactly. Oh, okay. So I'm going to pull us back around to The Magician. 
Um, yes. Okay. Which is a really interesting movie to talk about. Um, so it's uh, I watched it on the Criterion Collection. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Which is an absolutely gorgeous remastering, and it also came with a really interesting kind of behind the scenes booklet. Uh, it's about sixty. Do, do we? So do we all long. watch those? Oh, the booklet. Oh, did yeah. you guys watch the special features on there too? I didn't know. Um, I watched one interview and then got through part of the audio one. Uh, the audio one takes forever. But it was interesting even hearing him talk. And the audio one's long. It is long. And it kind of, uh, the part that I li- did listen to is sort of kind of up and down with how on track it is with the magician. But the book itself was really interesting because it had the written interview of him uh, uh, that Bergman did. And he's surprisingly open about his movies as opposed to, um, like, other directors, which like Kubrick and Tarantino and stuff who are famous for, like, not even really talking about specifics about their films and what they're based on and stuff like that. But his was really candid about who he based characters on and where he was in his life um, and stuff like that. And I actually wrote down a couple of things about it. Um, so... When he wrote the film, uh, it was at a time where he was doing a lot of theater. So he was a theater actor, I believe, and theater director. And he was kind of bouncing around from town to town with his troupe, which kind of represents the troupe in the film that the magician is a part of, um, Vogler. And uh, so he describes a couple of towns that he had been to, and uh, he uses those towns... Uh, to create characters in the film so uh, the character of Eggerman represents the town of Malmo that um, Bergman was in and so it sort of represents uh, this is all self-described by Bergman Uh, he said the town was friendly um, and it's representative of Eggerman who was amiable and a dogged enthusiast but who wanted to keep his distance and formulate rules what character is, is that? Eggerman yeah, who, okay, who so that? when I was thinking about this again, um, I got kind of confused. I wanted to say Eggerman was the guy who had the wife who wanted to cheat on him, <laughs> I think. Um, but oh. when I was looking at the characters, I I th- think it might not have been – that might not have been him. Uh, let me double ch- – oh, should I close that? Already? Hold Let's on see. Oh, uh, I think you're right. It's Gertrude Fred. Fred. Gertrude Fried? was the wife, right? That's the um, that's the name of the actress, right? Gertrude Fred. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think this was that person. The oh, here we go. Um, Eggerman. Yeah, cons- the consul. Yeah, that guy's the. That's the husband. Exactly. Yes, that's who I'm talking yeah. about. Oh, oh. Sorry. So he was. Jos- yeah, Josephen. he was the husband yeah. whose wife uh, was trying to give herself to Vogler, um, and kind of was like, "Oh, you're this like mysterious ma- uh, magician guy." Um, right. What so a great scene. <laughs> yeah. Right. Amazing. Uh, so, he, um, yeah. So he represented uh, this this individual who was not opposed to what was happening and the magicians because part of the film the idea is that uh this troupe kind of has a reputation that precedes them that's the that's the big thing and that's why they get stopped by uh, the police chief uh, to be questioned 
about their mysterious ways because they kind of got a negative there's a negative perception about him yeah like bad um, press sort of a like yeah pr exactly a better pr guy i think exactly so he was kind of okay <laughs> with things um but his issue was that obviously his wife was kind of getting entangled with these nefarious people the police chief represented uh the critics that bergman was dealing with at the time the health official so the main antagonist of the film the guy who's always out who's kind of always out to get him um according to bergman he was born out of an irresistible desire to take uh small revenge on this individual named harry shine uh shine was a movie critic who kind of had a lot of pull at the time um and apparently was him and bergman were not exactly seeing eye to eye so can we talk can we talk about that for a second which one so that idea of the 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 doctor guy who's the health official yeah yeah the health official who's like questioning him and that whole scene of just like like the fact that he is mute and can't talk and he's like, he can't say anything back, but like to this critic who's criticizing all of his work, but he's just stuck saying nothing. You know what I mean? It feels so much like when you're sitting there reading like a review of your movie online and it just sucks. And it's like a horrible review. Um, and you can't say anything back. You just have to sit there and take it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Which, which is why that scene works. And that's, that's exactly why that, and, it's interesting hearing Bergman even talk about that because that's literally why he created that scene for that same exact feeling. Yeah. God, it just nails it. Which is interesting because when I watched that scene at first, I thought, I feel like I might have missed something, but I thought that when uh, the, I can't remember the name of the guy who was the talkative one in the troupe, the guy, the showman guy, I thought he just jumped in and created an excuse for him on the spot that he, that he was mute so that he didn't have to say anything. And I thought that was like a really bad plan. That's what I thought too. Yeah. Right, but yeah. in actuality, no, that was just their shtick. Was that he was mute, and that was how they were playing um, his magic and stuff. Uh, so that it kind of adds to that too, because it's like, well, I thought he just said that, and that's why he was playing mute, uh, and that's why I thought he was getting frustrated because he couldn't like, you know, say anything. He was like, "Why did you?" You know, I expected them to cut the next scene to be like, "Why the hell did you say I was mute?" Yeah, you know right. I mean? Um, which I, th- I think I'm, I'm guessing Bergman did that on purpose, you know, which is so cool. <laughs> um, and there was a that guy represented something, too, but I can't remember if I put that in there. But anyway, um, so Harry Shine, that's exactly he's essentially Bergman's antagonist in real life. And I actually I guess they actually became really good friends later on. Um, so he kind of ha- he Bergman said that he doesn't like to specifically pick people out and create a character that is hate hated in a film, but that was kind of the one exception and he sort of regretted it and they kind of became friends later. Um, he also kind of, he is really sly. Uh, so I guess what he did was when they were sort of had their, their misunderstandings, he actually Bergman actually convinced shines wife at the time to, who was, uh, obsessed with being an actress and that's all she wanted to do. Um, and she, shine was against that so bergman convinced her to join bergman's show what? yeah so uh she had like a big role in the show and so harry shine was forced to travel like i think it was two hours from uh 
it was like Berlin or something. I can't remember exactly where he was traveling from. He had to travel two hours from where he lived to watch the show every time the show played. <laughs> so that was like his way of getting back at that's him. That's epic. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, so according to Bergman, the focal point of the story is Vogler's wife. She was the most compelling to me. She was. Yeah. Uh, immediately. Like every time she was on screen, you kind of couldn't look away mm-hmm. like exactly. she's just like what is she up to you exactly know? and um my girlfriend noticed even right away that she was like okay is that supposed to be a woman playing a man yeah, yeah. and this is 1958 we got to remember like the times right like it's really uncommon no that, that yeah like that, that that doesn't that's not a kosher thing no not so, at all so to speak yeah which i i was very i was like whoa is that a that's a chick and i thought it was like just a girl who like had like a masculine persona like as a stage presence which is what it was but then it sort of like started blending together like it in the movie like uh it was hard to like say which was the actual person to me like whether she was like the the her actual wife what it just there was so much like there's just like a weird tone that like sexual confusion type thing like for the main character it, it, that that I that I saw in the movie like he wasn't sure which one was the real one not that I mean he knew but like I don't We're know talking about like the health official shot. who no, was the I'm one talking, I'm talking about Volger's oh, Volger okay. and Volger's wife okay who's dressed up right oh, that's what right, 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 about, yeah. right yeah yeah so I don't know there's just like a just like an odd like and I, I I enjoyed it. I, I it was it was just like a, I, you know, I don't really know how to. Describe well, she it. spent half the movie with long blonde hair and half the movie with short black hair, so yeah. there is this sort of like dissonance that you that creates in your head of like, okay, so she's acting here, but like, they all know that she's a woman, yeah, because the doctor comes in and confronts her, you know, when he's wasted or whatever. That was an and interesting scene. That, that was, was interesting maybe scene. the best scene in the. I think for me, the, in the whole movie. There was a lot of tension with that one, but she's talking to him with the blonde hair, you know, like, and she's like in her nightgown and stuff. So, it, it's really this weird play back and forth between the two. And according to Bergman, the whole story rotates around what he said is her enigmatic personality. Um, and he said she represents the belief in the holiness of human beings, while Vogler, on the other hand, has given up. He's a lot more pessimistic. Uh, according to Bergman, he said he knows he's doing this really schlocky, cheap theater, and he's kind of just really sick of doing what he's doing because um, it's, to him, more meaningless. Tubal, that's his name. Tubal is the name the of the... He's the loud guy, right? He's the loud guy, yeah. yeah. Um, who oh, eventually... With the hipster beard, yeah, the mutton chops or something, yeah, and yeah. he's the one who stays behind for Greta, or, uh, yeah, or whatever her name was. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. gets seduced by her when he's trying. He's like trying to seduce her, but it it it, it the opposite happens. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so what's interesting is that um, apparently Tubal, so he's the loud guy, uh, represents Bergman himself. As the director, I, I thought I thought Vol- Volger was was him. No, no. Uh, 
Bergman himself know. said that Tubal is a representation of. He says he is Bergman, the director, trying to convince uh, Dimling, uh, the head of the studio, of the usefulness and quality of his latest film. It's funny because I think you can read it both ways. Because I think a lot of the critics at first read Max von Sydow's character, you know, Vogler, um, as Bergman. I think that I think that was like a common. I think that's a pretty literal uh, yeah. interpretation. Yeah. Because Bergman being an actor and director in right. theater, you know, you're. But of course- it is. But it's interesting because I read the same thing that um, that Bergman himself kind of viewed himself as um, is a Tubal. Yeah. yeah. So like, I, I it's it's and it is interesting because um, I read both things, which was inter- like, I, I, I thought that was uh, like, oh wow, interesting. Well, as a director and someone who's trying to get projects off the ground. Of course, you're spending most of your time yeah. uh, set, trying to sell things to boards of people who have all the money. Yeah, sure. That's what it is. There's uh, when when I was in my screenwriting classes, which um, debate debatably are helpful or not. Um, I don't think they were, but you know, whatever. Goodbye, money. Um, they were saying how uh, my teacher said that usually when you write, you you end up writing a piece of you in each of your characters. And I, I feel like that really shows here with, um, even, I mean, even if he does identify more with Tubal, um, I think that's, that's fine. I think, you know, when you write characters, sometimes you identify with one more than the other, but there's a piece of you in each of them. Um, and just cause there has to be, you know what I mean? Cause you, you, when you're writing, you are those characters and you're, you're, you're making them come to life. And there's a reason he wrote vulgar the way Vol- Vogler, 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 Vogler. I'm switching the V O G L E R, right? Yeah, Vogler, yeah. Vogler, Vogler, yeah, G L, yeah. Um, there's a reason he wrote that character, and um, there's a reason he wrote all these characters. Um, so I think to just say, oh, he is this one character is is incorrect. Um, but I think saying he, you know, he's more Tubal or Mo Vo- more Vo- Vogler is 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 a correct statement because you know that is what it is you know it's what i funny. mean it's funny because like the magician is maybe my like sixth or seventh um bergman film that i've watched i need to watch more of his stuff but i when i was watching it i actually felt that i saw more bergman in um manda the uh, miss vogler's uh, mrs vogler's a uh, character um because uh, mm. she's darker mm-hmm. she's 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 not super vocal. Um, she's into the holiness of you know uh, of what they're doing, or of of, you know, of humanity. Um, so it's interesting because that's kind of what his other films are, at least the ones I've seen. You know, The Silence, which ironically stars that same actress, um, Persona. Um, you know, so like Seventh Seal, I think the Seventh Seal. And it was yeah. funny about the Seventh Seal is that was made right before this movie, and. I've seen the Seventh Seal a couple times, and the first like five minutes of this film, I was like, "Oh my god, it's almost it's like so similar." Like some of the 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 images and the characters, even and the way they're they're positioned in frame and everything. I was like, "Oh my are, god, are this they is in like a carriage like, or also or like a small space?" I believe so. I believe there's a. It's been a little while since I've seen it, but yeah, I do remember there's like a carriage or a, at least a caravan of sorts um, at some oh, point weird. in the beginning of the Seventh Seal, or at least there's char- similar looking characters and the way they're all positioned like when they're when that when they see the the man die 
um, at the beginning of the magician and 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 the way like the camera was set up and the way the characters were all like surrounding the the, the body you know was very similar to stuff that I remember seeing in the Seventh Seal. So it's interesting to see to see that. But yeah, it's just funny how like you were saying about the screenplay and, or how you know screenwriters or directors put themselves and all these different characters and i totally saw that with with this um that's crazy yeah i mean that's not crazy but i'm excited to see his other stuff because i i want to get that i want to get to that point where i'm like this feels bergman to me you know what i mean yeah yeah he's such an interesting director and he does do quite a few different types of things i mean like fanny and alexander is so different from this but Mm -hmm. This yeah, is a wide range of genre yeah. stuff. But yet, but yet, he does like comedies and dramas. Really but he, stuff, he has yeah. really like satirical, um, like melancholic comedies, right? Yeah. He's I, even done, uh, they consider it one horror film, too, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, Hour of the Wolf. Hour of the Wolf, yeah. Which is actually, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I, like I, I want to put it on our list that's of stuff we're talking about. That's your favorite. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> Uh, but it's so, interesting too. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I wanted to talk about the guy, the actor that they meet um, in the swamp at the beginning, um, because that that guy. I don't know if you guys stumbled upon this, but his name in what is it? Swedish? Yeah, Sweden, Swedenish, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, mean it means mirror. I must have missed that part. I don't know. I kind of was... I think I was doing something right at the beginning of the movie when I started, so I might have missed that part. That is interesting. But his name translates into Mir, is 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 what it is. But it's it's the guy who, like, comes back and he steals a bottle of whiskey as the ghost. Or Brandy. Oh, right. that guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He's, like, the, like the, the actor who's, like, literally washed up, cause he, and he, like, pushes him in a swamp or whatever. Um, yeah, the guy who, quote-unquote, dies but then comes back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it okay? It's interesting. His name means mirror. It is. Yeah. It is funny because I guess the Swedish translation of the actual film isn't the it's magician. The it's the face. It's yeah. the face. A- yeah. An- yeah. Aniske- Aniske- I, I, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Swedish actually. Do it. Translate. Actually, try it. Try. It's like Anis Anistet or something like that. It, oh God, that's not. I would say Ansiktet. Ansiktet. An- yeah. Ansiktet. See, I wrote it down. Oh yeah, it is Ansiktet. Yeah. Oh, is it? Real? Oh, wow! I'm a natural Swede. You know, Ansiktet. my blood. Yeah. So I think I'm like one sixteenth Swedish. <laughs> you look. You look more Norwegian or Nor, Nor, Norwegian. Norwegian. Nor, Norwegian. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'll take that, Norwegian. I made that one up. I made, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It, it translates to the face, um, which is interesting, and I, I don't know why. It was when it came to the U.S. that they decided to call the magician, which is not an uncommon practice yeah. for movies no, to, to have their names that's, changed. That's a whole episode topic, man. We could talk about. Yeah. It really is. How yeah. In Europe, all movies, like all like romantic comedies, have the word "sex" in it in the title. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they do. Like everything is just because like, they don't care sex, as blah, much. Blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> the Hangover was retitled as like "Sex Something." I'm sure. <laughs> I'm going to look this up right now. Just because "Sex in the City" is like the only one that doesn't have it in the title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the sex in the sex. <laughs> yeah. oh, I'll, I'll look this up later. We can keep. We can keep going. That, that I mean, we could talk about that for at least two minutes. At least. 
I just want to just throw in here too. Um, so the film was entirely shot in Sweden, entirely Swedish production. In a studio, right? Entirely in studio. Uh, I think even all the exteriors Crazy. were studio stuff. Um, really? Wow! Even in the forest. I mean, a lot of that stuff is pretty. It's, it was really dark, right? I mean, they they shot it so that it looked like it was at night, but it was also shot in that very noir forties um, high contrast, high, high yeah. contrast, high key lighting uh, or low key yeah. lighting, um, and so it it made things a little bit easier to hide. So I think that it was entirely shot in studio. Yeah, I don't think there was wow. any uh, exterior stuff. That's surprising. That's actually really cool. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. It shows, too, because, well, the whole film takes place at night. It takes place over one night, I believe, is the yeah. the film time. Uh-huh. Um, and so what they did to get around shooting in studios, if you look at all the windows, they're all, like, black. Even though, even though the curtains are open, they're all black. Um, there's no light. There's no, quote-unquote, natural light from a moon or something coming in. Got it. Um, I kind of like that. Yeah. So, I but like that's kind too. of, that's one of those telltale things. It's a, it's kind of an older style of filmmaking, the studio filmmaking. Um, like nowadays, you'll notice that, uh, especially with this really low saturation that people like to do, uh, House of Cards is really uh, guilty of this. Uh, it's this quote-unquote natural light. So the windows mm-hmm. and stuff are all the light sources and what they'll do is they'll opaque the windows with white or they'll cover it with a white curtain and just blow a ton of light into it um and then stage the actors around stuff like that um so Mm -hmm. instead of having a lot of like backlighting to kind of separate the actor and to draw your eye it'll just be this like kind of contrasted look on their face with the natural really soft light and stuff like that and so it's you notice it it's like a really common practice it's kind of tiring to look at for me it is now i see it so much i mean i think it's cheaper so that's probably why they're doing yeah (laughs) and it's faster and faster yeah it's way faster right and actually we'll talk about this exact thing Actually, this could be a good segue into The Prestige um, because this is exactly the approach that Nolan took. So the second film we're going to talk about is Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Um, it was made in 2006. Actually, real quick, I just want this is an interesting factoid I wanted to say uh, about <clears throat> uh, The Magician. So The Magician was released in 1958, and the other films that were released that year were Vertigo, Touch of Evil, uh, Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, The Blob, and The Old Man in the Sea. So that was kind of a jam-packed right. year for film. Man, Touch of Evil um, is so good. Touch it's of Evil really helps place where the movie is for me. Because sometimes when I watch older movies, it's like, when was this? You know what I mean? Like, you know, I watched the old Robin Hood, and it was like like the old, old one from like 1928 or something. Oh, yeah, with Errol and, Flynn, yeah. Yeah, with Errol Flynn, yeah. Really good swashbuckler movie, but um, it was, like, hard to figure out where that movie existed. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's like talking about uh, the summer. I think it was the summer that Jurassic Park came out. There was, like, five big movies that all came out at the exact same yeah. time yeah. Um, that were all considered classics now. So, And then Vertigo, obviously, just became Sight and Sound's number one movie of all time. It uh, dethroned Citizen Kane as the number one movie. Wow. Um, yeah. Wonder so how many film critics that pissed off? Well, it's film <laughs> probably it is film critics. Probably what do they no do? One, so no one I care about. 
Well, they take <laughs> it's. I believe it's eight hundred film critics. They poll for that. Um, for that sight and sound. Poll. Oh wow! So it was yeah. their decision. Yeah, it was their decision. Yeah. So and I in films like I think The Godfather like dropped a couple of places too. Uh, yeah, Sight and Sound and Poli and AFI. I really like AFI's list. Those are interesting too, but kind of the politics behind how they rank movies and why movies are ranked. If you yeah, um, if you ever get a chance to check out um, uh, Film Comment. I really like that magazine. Film Comment? Yeah. Like C-O-M-M-E-N-T? Yeah. Okay. And they, they, they have a list. I think it's all done by the Lincoln Center, I think, in New York. And they have a – they always, every year, they have all these lists – um, of, of like their, of the best of the decade, best of the year, best of the, you know, it's, it's really cool. And it's always interesting to see all these, um, critics compare and list their favorites and, and, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> no, I did. And I, I agree with you, Jacob. It is interesting to try and frame movies in their respective time because there was a film that just came out. I wish I could remember the name off the top of my head. Um, it's, it's a film about a uh, a woman who is a witch, and it was shot uh, within the last couple of years. I want to say it was like last year um, or the year before that. And is it is it the witch? No, no, <laughs> it's not the witch. Um, I never saw it, so I don't know. Um, that was an interesting movie. But um, the film looks like it was made in the seventies. Oh, sweet! Um, with or seventies ah. or sixties, like, like you can't, you literally can't tell. Oh, is this that the one where it's 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 like a, it's like a horror film, but it's it's a little. I I, I totally know what you're talking about. It's it's um. It's like a, a homage to like a little bit of sexploitation yeah, with a little exactly. bit of like um, of the seventies huh. horror. That looked actually really interesting because when I first saw the trailer, I was like, "Oh, is this like a re-release?" Yeah, you know, exactly. of, of an old film. But then it was, I believe, it was directed by a woman as well, which I was like, "Oh, cool!" Like, like all of a sudden, I was like, "This is actually a new film. Like, this isn't." You know, yeah, an exactly. old movie. I think that, it's like an A24 or Annapurna, I think, produced it or something like that. Yeah. A24 oh, is Here it is. Shit. It's called The Love Witch. That's it. The Love Witch. Yes. So it was Love made, Witch. That's it, what I was going to say. Yep, yeah. It was made last year. <laughs> um, and if you watch the trailers, highly recommend for the listeners to watch the trailers for that because you literally can't tell that it's was made mm. last year. Um, so That's it's crazy. interesting to frame it amongst the other movies that were made last year. Like, I mean, take all the Oscar picks, for yeah. example, and then put that movie next to it. And yeah. then it looks you know. so like Brian De Palma ish. <laughs> I, I, I want to I call out a movie that is the same exact thing. 70s, also filmed by a, or a fem, female fem, filmmaker made it, wrote and directed. Um, it's called uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl. And they, it's, same thing except it's a coming of age story um but they use old 70s lenses to shoot it and it's all shot in san francisco on location which is really rare to actually shoot in san francisco um but it has that like old 70s look to it it's it's not an homage to exploitation or anything like that it's a pretty uh modern story about you know a 16 year old girl who like you know starts banging like a an older guy you know what i mean uh, <laughs> sounds who's, familiar i mean those types of stories are kind of common actually surprisingly but yeah. very, that movie very sounds common. familiar yeah it's it's a but it's re- it's done really well um 
definitely worth a watch and it has that 70s look to it because they they were talking about the lenses they used for it and it was like they like i I don't think they actually dug them up but it sounded like they were digging them up like from like a uh, next to dinosaur bones or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> all right, we found these. Let's just go shoot our movie. Well, it's like you know, super uh, cool. the Hateful Eight is the same thing. Where Tarantino basically stumbled, uh, basically walked by these vintage lenses and was like, "Got to make a western." Yeah, the last time you they know? were used was 1966 exactly. for cartoon. Uh, I exactly. mean, that's just insane. So, and it's yeah. it's an interesting thing too because these movies Love that it when people do that. That's great. <laughs> these movies that were made today nowadays that look retro. I mean. I'm pretty sure the Love Witch went through the entire process. They got the the correct film stock for the time, the lenses, the camera. They did all the that sort of pictorial lighting, the colors, the real, the, and then the color timing to get that sort of saturated, really heavy look. Like the mm-hmm. makeup and the style, and that sort That's of cool. there's like an acting that oh, was yeah, se- that, very yeah, 70s yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that'd be one to talk, interesting one to talk about, and you could even compare it to like stuff like The Artist, which tried to be yeah. uh, that. New Age silent film, but they didn't really go all the way of being completely looking like they're from the twenties. Right. Um, not and it's not technically a silent film because there is because at the very end there's sound. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> sound. Um, so no yeah, watching that movie. I'm just I'm just saying that movie came and went. Done. Gone. <laughs> it kind of did. Uh, yeah. But so yeah. So our second film is Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Um, it was made in 2006 amongst two other. So there's three total films that were released that year that all had to do with either magic or magicians. Yes. What were um, they? One of them was The, the Illusionist. Illusionist. Sorry. And then um, Spoof. Scoop. Spoofed? Yeah. Scoop. Scoop yeah. is the yeah. other one. Um, and I haven't seen Scoop. Um, actually, I haven't seen Illusionist either. I keep I keep meaning to watch that. Um, so the films that's, that's uh, Edward Norton is in it. Edward Norton yeah. in that one. Yeah. Yeah, I like that movie. It's like love story. Yeah. Yeah, they're Jessica, really Jessica Biel. Because they were released in the same year, they're always compared to each other, and people debate yeah. which one is better. And yeah, yada, yada. it's one of those different yeah, mixed like market things. Yeah. Um, so the film stars Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, Michael Caine, Rebecca Hall, Andy Serkis, and David Bowie, which I love. Yeah, David um, Bowie. When yeah. he shows up, I just applause. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is exactly I bet you spilled your ice cream. That's exactly why he was <laughs> casted, though, him. because of that. Of what you're saying, when he shows up, it's like. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah that is Dave. Yeah, that is like, like that is David Bowie. Yeah. It's, he's, he's playing yeah, Tesla. Exactly. Yes. Um, so the film was produced by Chris Ball, Valerie Dean, Charles Schlissel, and William Tyrer. Uh, the cinematography was and done Emma by Thomas. Wally Pfister. And Emma Thomas. And Emma Thomas, As a producer. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh Okay. Cinematography was done by Wally Pfister. It was edited by Lee Smith. Uh, the music was composed by David Julian. Production design was by Nathan Crowley. Yeah, that guy fucking killed it. He did. He really did. Movie. And God. costumes were designed by Joan Bergen. The film was shot in L.A., both in L.A. and Colorado. Uh, it is distributed by Buena Vista Pictures. So the interesting way that our discussion of the very end of the magician connects into this uh, is our discussion of natural lighting. So the first things you'll kind of come across when discussing or looking for anything about the prestige is that one, it was shot handheld and two, it was shot using a lot of natural lighting. And the reasons for the big reason for both of those things happening was speed. They wanted to shoot 
the production he was just coming off batman begins and they wanted to get this one in production into production him and his brother had worked on the script on and off for like five years uh based off of the prestige of the book and they just wanted to basically do like a shotgun movie where they just wanted to get it made you know what i mean they Um, shot it in like three months or something it was really fast it was really fast in yeah in movie times with principal photography itself that that's the point where you're just actually shooting the movie um, just after the script writing and the planning and just before editing you know that can take anywhere from i mean the revenant took five years to shoot just to like get some of the photography done and some films get made in like i think evil dead was made in like a like couple of weeks or a week even um it was really really fast what was that um is that nathan fillion uh move it was shot in a weekend it's like the ultimate like fastest weekend was that the black and white one the shakespeare one yeah, the Shakespeare one. Well, um, uh, much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, Joss, Joss Whedon. It has to be Much Ado About it, Nothing. Like did it, yeah, like did it in his house over the weekend. Yeah, I think something. it was Much Ado About Nothing. That's insane. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's so fast. We should That's watch so that fast. movie. <laughs> so when we're talking like about... fastest production ever. Yeah, and when we're talking about movies that are shooting fast, we're talking about if you shoot a movie in a week, you're likely shooting like 18-hour days. You know what I mean? Like you're doing the movie... There's a couple of breaks to eat. You're going to bed. You're getting up again, and you're shooting. And it's just hardcore uh, shooting. So that's why, you know, they tend to plan. Three months is actually is pretty quick, but it's you know kind of average, sort of a little bit little bit quicker than average. Uh, I'd say f- probably five to six months. I think for that budget, it feels fast. It but, totally. Is. I mean, if you look at like what the like production designer like had to do with all those locations and how they have to dress all that up that takes a lot of time to like do and that's a lot of early morning yeah shit you know Um, what i mean and so part of that too is that he only there was only one set that was actually built for that movie um what set was it that was the under the stage uh, I believe where I, all the tanks are. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So why, did, why couldn't they just go in a warehouse for that? Do they really? Need well, the other stuff was all, uh, I, I don't, I couldn't find anything exactly why they needed to build that one. Uh, but I know that that was the only one that was built. Everything else was either dressed was, was it, that's what it was. It was dressed to, um, the necessities of their shots at the time. And the, a lot of it, they actually shot around LA in theaters that were just in LA uh, and then they just kind of dressed it up to kind of give it that older kind of late 1800s yeah, look. Dude, they did such a good job for that. I'm pretty. Didn't um, that guy get? Didn't he get an Oscar for production design on this movie? Did he? He might have. I think he. I think he did. It's definitely a possibility um, because it's just like, uh, uh, yep. Oh, he was nominated. He did not win, but he was nominated um, for the prestige. Of course, um, yeah, it's crazy. But he, I think he won a couple other things. I was, I was looking it up. I, I wasn't sure, but um, yeah, just such a good job on the production design aspect of it because you know when you do a period piece in another, you know, like in in L.A. or something, it's so hard to like find something that looks right that like looks like it's old and like from that era, um, but. I just I just wanted to say did a really good job. And they yeah. shot it. Well, some it of those looks, it looks right. It Everything looks right. right, and some of those sets, like the exterior street stuff. I mean, 
they sh- the whole set was filled with people and they dressed the whole set from the foreground to the background you know what i mean like that's it takes a lot of time but the fact that they were able to do it as fast as they did and still manage to get these like you know big sets like that is is impressive it's, it's almost like they intentionally like were like all right we're gonna put lighting behind so we can like elevate we want to elevate the production design like a lot we want a lot of things to go like make this really feel like a period movie and it feels like they were like maybe if i'm speculating here but maybe if there's like studio pressure to like all right we have this much time um to to shoot this movie we can either have it look like a period movie or we can have cool lighting and i i feel like they made a decision that was like let's uh let's make it a period movie and let's do natural light. Cause that's, that's something that, uh, they did for uh, like, you know, the following. And I don't know if Memento is, is I bet Memento has mostly natural. Light. Yeah, I, I think know, so. I don't know about insomnia. A lot of Memento's but outside. Didn't. <laughs> well, Batman, it's a mix for sure. I mean, obviously it's when you're in a penthouse and all the, the whole thing is, Right. glass and windows you're going to use that as your main light source right because the sun right. is the greatest light source uh but yeah it's kind of a mix and wally fister does this a really good job of blending the two i mean you can really tell when it's a fister shot movie i mean look at all three batman movies and mm-hmm. this one um and I, I think he did insomnia correct too right so yeah um, i think so so i think that was his first movie with uh the nolan's was insane. And it shows that like, there's yeah. a very consistent look that they get. And you're right, too, that um, even using all the natural light and stuff like the film is pretty bright overall. There's not a lot of like there is shadow and it does kind of have a sort of noir neo noir feel to it. But mm-hmm. it is really bright and everything can be seen um, even in like low key areas where they're doing cheap magic um like when Christian Bale is doing the the trick where he catches the bullet or whatever. Um, yeah, the bullet catch. In like yeah. the basement of a bar or whatever, you know. And even when they're under the stage, you can still see the whole kind of area under the stage. Mm-hmm. It's funny because like the illusionist is like very dark. You is know? it? It's different, yeah. That's interesting. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, and the cinematography, it was nominated for the Oscar for Best Cinematography, too. Definitely not. So, oh, really? Bo- yeah, so oh, wow, that's bo- cool. both, of the, both of the things that we're talking about were both nominated That were, like, <laughs> jizzing all over. But it's interesting. Everyone was jizzing on those when um, they came out. <laughs> talking about the speed at which it was shot and the time frame and the fact that they shot it handheld, it kind of, you can kind of feel it. Like, that movie's, the pacing for that movie is is it's just almost nonstop for how intricate and dramatic it is between just the characters. It's like a, it's pretty much right at two hours, isn't it? I think so. And it, yeah. it flies by. It does. I think like it, yeah, it's like it seems There's a like, lot to the story. Right. There is. It's There's a crazy a deep story, and I think part of what causes that feeling too is that there's this constant jump of time in the narrative right so you got your framing story which is like the story that sets up everything and the movie kind of plays back to right and that's the that's christian bale in the most recent time in the he got arrested um for yeah, he's in the he's in the jail because they think that he killed um yeah jackman's character and so there's this cut to that while he's reading the journal but then there's like the far past where they're working together kind of right before that they have the split and then 
it kind of jumps ahead to where Jackman is like in Colorado and then they jump back to it to explain why he's in Colorado and there's this jump back to like there's jump to when and then you see the part where Jackman's wife dies um, which really sets off things and then you know it jumps to Johansson's character and then the journal that she gives him and then her it like shows the scene but then it'll go back to the scene and reveal more of what happened in the scene like and he doesn't do any tricks like a lot of like what a lot of like amateur filmmakers would do they'll be like oh let's do all the uh like what he kind of what he did in memento i suppose is one section is black and white white. exactly and one section in color and black and white always refers to older like the past or whatever or there'll be some there'll be some sort of gimmick to show you what the the past is but he doesn't do that like an obvious yeah like you you know if it's a flashback it's got like that white vignette with oh yeah 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 exactly exactly i remember back when i get so bored with that like i some of my favorite movies are the ones where you have to watch over and over and over again because you have to figure out if that scene takes place before or after or during right. another scene right before you know like it, it, i love those type of movies so I, that's why i really find I, the prestige like more engaging you know right no i agree i you know i used to be that way and then i watched primer <laughs> and then I, was like, uh, I don't care anymore. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. I can't I'm wait till we talk about Primer though, because oh, that movie's dude. awesome. We, we, I actually love Primer. Primer's yeah. like my one of my favorites of all time. It's freaking amazing. I like both um, his movies for sure. Um, but yeah, me too. But it's interesting that he's able to do this complex narrative structure while maintaining this overall structure, which they describe to you in the film, which is it's. The, the three things that Michael Caine says right in the very beginning in his monologue, the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. So the movie is actually... Yeah, the, that's the magic. That's like how a magic trick works, right? Exactly. Like it's like the one, two, three of it. Exactly. But that's yeah. also the exact structure of the movie. Yeah. That each act is one of those things. So the first act is the pledge, the second one is the turn, and then the prestige where everything is revealed. And then the last, yeah. like, whatever, 15 minutes of revelation is, like, it's crazy, how that yeah. like how he just reveals like uh, how everything is so confused and convoluted then all of a sudden it just wraps up and you're like holy I shit just, it all makes sense yeah yeah <laughs> I, I don't get how you can write a movie where you're confused the entire time and still have it be engaging and then it all wraps up at the end and you feel satisfied like i just how did i not give up halfway through i feel like most of the time when movies like intentionally confuse you or like leave something open there's like a, a window there where you got to close close the gap and like you know give the audience something but this movie doesn't do that it gives it gives it all to you at the very end and it's still so engaging yeah and I then even that. at the very I end how he do, i don't know how they do it well even at the very end he doesn't even give you all right he gives you yeah, one no. last little question and right. you're kind of like fuck you Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> thanks man but like I, I find this ending so much more satisfying like than the ending of inception which i know that movie the ending gets so much like hate or so much love like to me i was like eh, it just seemed, it's it seemed poppy, like it's a pop movie you know right, I mean? like right. prestige wasn't like a poppy movie like inception no. was like inception was just huge you know yeah. so it had all the all the weirdos because we're not weird we're we're the normal ones, uh, <laughs> uh, but all the weirdos came out and were like, "Oh, the ending's so stupid, so cheap, and it's like yeah. a hell expensive movie." Well, this fucking stupid ass movie. 
okay, you can go fuck <laughs> off now. Those are the same people that are like talking about you know Fight Club and and, and the ending of Fight Club. Fight Club's the greatest movie yeah. ever, yeah, yeah. man. Uh, dude, I, said I, every know, fifteen I, year old guy ever. <laughs> I mean, it's you know it's a pretty good movie, but it's oh, one yeah. of those ones that like. That everybody, because they want to be cool, says it's a good movie. Yeah. It's like, dude, it's like you couldn't even critic. tell. Like, yeah. yeah. But it's still really. Film it's one of those, 101. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Film, <laughs> film bro. Let's call them film bros. <laughs> film bro. I love that. <laughs> film bro. <laughs> film bro. <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to have to continue. We're going to have to go back on that. Yeah. Talk about we'll film bros. Good, yeah. uh, I'm sure we'll cover Fight Club at some point, though, because it's still engaging to talk about how We'll have a film bro made. episode. It'll be great. We'll do Fight Club and, you know. What 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 uh what else what else? Um, oh yeah, there's too many. Um, I literally uh, was just the, looking at the, this actually. What's that cinematography one where it's, I think I think it's Swedish, but it has oh the, it's it's like just that diving bell the and the butterfly. Oh no, that would be good too. That was that, that was a good film, but that's one that like everyone's like, oh the cinematography's so good. Which I mean, yeah, it is good, but it's like it's like one of the ones that everybody goes to that right. says you know. Like oh yeah, like look at the cinematography or yeah. um, um Amelie Amelie oh Amelie yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah Amelie that's a film bro movie man I feel like <laughs> is it yeah you know, it's like it a is. weird like quirky rom com rom com I love yeah I like, it's like I, poppy kind of I it's guess funny really. because like I actually really like those directors except the guy who did Amelie is only half of the two guys that did you know Delicatessen and City of Lost oh, Children okay. but um. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's one of those ones. It's like, oh, I've seen a foreign film. It was called Amelie. Yeah, have you seen that's it? What it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen Amelie? Yeah. It's a foreign movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they speak subtitles. they speak French in it. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, it's French. It's not Swedish. It's, yeah, I'm worse than a film bro. I make fun. <laughs> I would say American Beauty is a film bro movie too. It is. Yeah. Every, oh, every yeah, dude's like, is. have you seen but American so Beauty? Good. That movie's amazing. That's it is a great good. Example. It is good. And it's that's a really, great example. That movie is one of the more interesting ones to talk about too in terms of how this production design and stuff like that so I would, yeah i'd like to cover that one at some point too because yeah. uh, fortunately for us nolan is the epitome of film bro right now right he is. yeah he totally is, he totally is, is. like oh do you see christopher nolan's new dunkirk movie like uh, yeah yeah well yeah i'm gonna go see it but not with you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so um, I, I like people. I I swear I do. Normal, <laughs> like everyone. Uh, so the other thing that this movie does that's pretty interesting too, um, to kind of help ground itself out in realism is it it shows a lot of the magic tricks without cutting. And a lot of that has to do with props and stuff that they set up to get the magic tricks done, right? But the only one that they really don't show right off the bat is the uh, transported man when Christian Bale, when they first see that one. Um, but it's interesting how they kind of, how they do that to kind of, I don't know, Nolan is so big on this realism thing that that's one of his, and that's why also another reason why Tesla, besides being in the book, another reason why he's in the film though is because it gives a historical context and a realism to the film, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's why they kept it. Kept exactly. It in there. And it's interesting too, um, when you hear him talk about Tesla specifically, uh, I guess Bowie was the first and only choice he had for that role. And that's Bowie, amazing. Bowie actually turned him down. So he flew out to meet with Bowie and convinced him uh, to be in the movie. Kind of like Hugh Jackman to his character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. He was a stand in for, for that whole scene. That's funny. 
I, uh, I think that's great. I think it's, uh, super fascinating that he, I mean, he does that a lot where he'll fly out and meet with people like secretly. Cause a lot of his projects are like super hot. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know what I mean? Like all the time, like everyone wants to know what was going on with interstellar and there, there was so much secrets, you know, and, and everyone wants it and it just kind of makes you want it more. You know what I mean? So I don't know. They have something figured out in the pre-production phase, phase, uh, phase to build that sort of momentum and to get people really interested in it somehow. Um, and yeah, I, feel I mean, like all he has is really fucking good. Well, all he has to do is good. attach his name to something, right? Like I know, <laughs> just I put think, his name on it. I think um, Man of Steel was like that, where he uh, pr- helped produce it um, right. mainly because I think he just attached his name to it, which right. is which what a lot of producer credits are. Just the one it says straight up produced by, not executive producer, or the other ones. Uh, a lot of those are just kind of throwaways where you know someone might have mm-hmm. done something for someone along the line but maybe not or maybe they just kind of were wanted to put their name towards something you know what i mean for yeah. there's a bunch of reasons it's a, the, it's a courtesy credit kind of so yeah exactly they, and that stems from the fact that the uh produce there's no producers guild so there's a directing guild and a writer's guild but there's no no one like isn't there a producer's watching. guild now yeah there's a there is guild, but yeah. it's not technically a union um, oh, I think it's okay. called the Producers Guild, but it's not a union. So they not a they legalized union. Yeah, they can't like get together and fight for the credits of producers. So a lot of producer credits are like thrown away, or just like, hey, let's put you know Ridley Scott on here or Matt Damon because you know it'll draw attention. You that's know that's I mean? the big thing, and that's what I was saying is uh, he kind of attaches his name to Man of Steel, which I think gave it a little more. I mean, Zack Snyder directed, right? So it's right. it's got uh, credit to it. I think even the uh, teaser, you know, said, you know, from the creator of the Batman trilogy. Exactly. And the creator yeah. of 300. Exactly. You know, and you're exactly. Like, okay. Yeah, so they can say that. Yeah. yeah. It's like... Uh, I mean, so go ahead. Oh, I was... I was go, you go ahead. I was going to oh. think of a specific movie, but now I, I just lost it. I was going to say, <laughs> it's it's... It's 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 exactly the same story as to how the George Lucas um, movie American Graffiti got made. It was um, let's see, fucking I blanking on his name, but who directed Godfather and shit? Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola, yeah. So uh, he was like going to the studio, like, hey, I want to make this movie. It's about you know dudes in cars and they're just driving around. It takes over place one night. It's just kind of like a party movie and. they were like, no. And then he's like, he called up his friend uh, Coppola and was like, hey, man, can you uh, EP this movie? And he's like, sure. And so he called <laughs> the studio back was like, all right, Coppola's on board. And the studio's like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> right away. Right away. That's exactly. And we'll talk about this more um, in our series with Tarantino specifically. But that's how Reservoir Dogs got made was when Harvey, oh, Keitel, when Har- uh, Harvey Keitel signed on. The movie went from having like a $300,000 budget to $5 million just for having wow. him on there. That's um, crazy. And then he brought other stars with him because yeah. they're like, wow. Because that's kind of when Keitel was roll, kind of rolling off because uh, Goodfellas and stuff was in the 90s, right? Or was it the 70s? Uh, Goodfellas was 1990. Goodfellas, yeah, early yeah. 90s, right? That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. it came so out in 1990, I believe, yeah. In Mean Streets and stuff. Yeah. So he was kind of rolling off those like those films. He, was, he wasn't like the hot ticket item, right? But he was still known. You're right. You know I, mean? I, yeah. I think Keitel was... was uh, he well he he's had an interesting career but yeah um, I don't he kind of got known through Scorsese 
Yeah, then, he was one of those New York bad boy kind of yeah. actors for a while, and then he started doing different roles. Um, but he was definitely a, 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 an actor that I think the independent film yeah. scene uh, yeah. knew a lot of, like, you know? Yeah, like Guy Pierce is now. He's yeah. like the independent film, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's, in, yeah, so just attaching your name to something like that, you know, can help you. And that's really how to do it. Uh, one of the classes I took, too, uh, there was this guy, I can't remember his name, um, his whole only, only goal in life with making movies is making movies that'll sell just commercial movies. Oh, I know. Yeah. And he makes dirt cheap movies that'll just, you know, probably straight to DVD type of thing. And w- one of his techniques for getting the movies made is he'll find, generally speaking, washed up actors. Um, so what he did, uh, I want to say it was in the 90s or like early 2000s when he was making this cheesy ass uh, action film, uh, is he got Charlie Sheen. Okay. And he, I think he paid him like ten grand or something. Um, and this is when Charlie Sheen was really at his low point. Um, but he still had a name, right? Where it's like, well, Charlie Sheen did a movie. Okay, well, it's something, right? Yeah, it's not yeah, it's yeah. not nothing. So he got his movie made, and it got sold, and he made whatever he wanted, money off of it, cause yeah. just because he had, you know, watched it on Charlie Sheen. Yeah. So, you know, that's how movies, that's, that's what it is. That's movies nowadays is just who's got, whose name is attached to it. Uh, who's the biggest star i mean that's why chris pratt is making the biggest movies right now because yeah. everyone wants to see chris pratt yeah. you know yeah. and jennifer lawrence i think is up there too and i think yeah. um michael fassbender definitely skyrocketed yeah. into that position pretty quick right. too so and that that's why scarlett johansson is in the new um ghost in the oh, shell fuck ghost yeah. in the shell yeah. yeah it's yeah, exactly. classic it's i i um script notes another podcast i listen to which is awesome they call it star washing where like they like intentionally go after stars because that's the only way to get financing. I mean, it's not the only way to get financing, but it's the best way. Easy, like, yeah. All right. It's like an easy way to do it is just to have a star. All right. Like even for the but, film shoot that I was at last weekend, we, we shot with an actress that has a TV show, um, that is just airing on Bravo and the E, um, Newsnet or E channel, whatever uh, channel. Is that um, the E exclamation point. I think so. Yeah. That is. Yeah. So okay. like you know, and she's in a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, like her IMDb list is is quite extensive. I mean, but a, little, you know, a lot of smaller parts. But yeah, we just you know pulled a favor, or you know, and and she's in this little teeny scene in this proof of concept thing that we're doing, which is two minutes long. Mm-hmm. But when they're sending it to studios, like you know it's like oh you know her name is there and she's she's you know on it um so like it it, it's like oh okay well you guys got her well maybe this is something that we can actually really look at you know (laughs) right yeah no it's like yeah it's it's it totally like you, you it's sometimes it's not about who is best for the role sometimes it's about who's like gonna elevate our movie you know what i mean and that's where i like directors who it, where it feels like they are casting or casting directors who cast a movie for the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of times, like, people will write a script and then they'll have, like, a punch-up session from, like, the movie star. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, The Rock has his guy who goes <laughs> yeah. through and, like, all right, let's 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 rewrite my dialogue to, you know, make sure it's something that I would say. You know I, I, I mean? guess Vin Diesel's like that, too, actually. Yeah, where yeah, he, a, a, a lot, lot of his... Stars, yeah. yeah, but like it, it, when it works, it's and you can't even tell that's magic, right? To me. 
but when it's obvious it feels like the movie is like desperately like trying to grab your money right you know what I mean? yeah yeah um so <laughs> I, that trying to find that balance of like mixing those two things uh when when you have to do it because it's something that people have to do um and just to get a celebrity in there or just someone well-known. And then there's, like, the really, really talented writers, like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, that writes specifically for, like, Daniel Day-Lewis for There Will Be Blood, and then he gets yeah, him, but, you know? It's like... Oh, <laughs> I know. You write with someone in mind, and then you get him? Yeah. Oh, or Joaquin Phoenix and Inherent Vice. Oh, yeah. Wow. He was incredible in that role. I, I liked him even better in um, The Master. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so good. Oh, the Master's oh, great. Yeah. I love The Master. We'll definitely be talking Paul Thomas Anderson very specifically about his films because, obviously, he's his his history in getting into movies and stuff is interesting. But, yeah. obviously, his his weird, like, indiness, you know what I mean? All of his movies have been... What, what you could consider quote unquote low budget movies right like he's never really done a big studio movie because yeah. um, he always does his movies or whatever so he's an interesting interesting person to talk about um, so just towards because we're getting towards the end here uh, I just kind of want to open it up to specific like opinions and stuff of the movies can, I mean we've kind of can I just indulge for a moment on a scene in the prestige sure is that cool yeah okay so that scene where so you know it's going along and he gets his Bergman oh not Bergman sorry um, who's uh, Christian Bale Borden Borden is Christian Bale's character um, he gets his fingers shot off yeah. from the catching the bullet thing and um, he like they're like in pain and then there's a scene like later where um, he meets with Scarlett Johansson and it's like bleeding again right and you think it's this scene that's like about them like reconnecting or like you know they've been fighting a lot and they're like oh they're like she's still taking care of him she's still like a mommy to him um and then at the end it's revealed when when christian bale is revealed to be a, um, two people like a twin um it shows that they're actually like cutting the finger off you know right. what i mean and <laughs> i think that scene is fantastic not just because it's such a huge surprise um but because it's also telling you that that whole Scarlett Johansson relationship with Christian Bale is just like totally, totally fucked. Just because <laughs> of that, like, just the manipulation. And I feel like a scene like that, like, people don't, people say, like, oh, this is such a great thing. Like, look how surprising that is. And oh, they slipped that in there. But it's also like this carefully crafted moment that tricks you. And I feel like that's like the heart of a lot of movies that Christopher Nolan does is is he he sneaks in these little tiny things that don't feel like they're anything and then they become the story at the end you know what i mean right i'm thinking like interstellar you know um when he's like the 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 little spinny um time thing that keeps rotating and that's like something that feels so small in the moment but then later that becomes what the movie is you know what i mean yeah, totally. It's like I'm getting blank stares. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I get what you're saying, and it's Was like talking uh, too the, long. you're talking about the totem, and you're talking about like uh, how you see it spinning, so you know how it no, works. I'm not talking about Inception. I'm talking about Interstellar. Oh, what am I thinking? Interstellar. Of? So like the the little watch thing that um, Jessica Chastain uses to like figure out gravity. Oh, that's like the, right. The key to yeah, it's been a while. Like, I don't remember a lot of Interstellar. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
I watched okay, well, it once and it was kind of like, eh. Gotcha. Okay. Well, just trust me when I say there's these little keys in there that that feel like there's nothing to them, but then secretly that's what the whole movie is. So it's like this surprise. Right. It's like at the very end of the movie, it's like revealed that all these tiny things that felt like nothing are actually huge. Huge. But it does, at the same time, it doesn't feel like a trick. It doesn't feel like an M. Night no. Shyamalan twist or whatever. It feels like no. it feels natural and it feels, um, I don't, yeah, I think that's really what makes Nolan great and, you know, more up there with like, you know, kind of like the modern day Spielberg where it doesn't feel forced, you know, um, right. where he has a, a blockbuster movie at the same time he makes you actually feel something a little bit, you yeah. know, I like, yeah. <laughs> right. And it makes you makes you wonder like how he got to the point where it's like he meshed those those two things because like obviously with Batman he was creating these tent poles for the studios and like they, they became huge and then he got his name out there too um, but like how he sort of is trying to blend like an art film with a studio film like he's trying to say things but he's also trying to like appeal to a mass audience which is something I really appreciate like someone who is trying to like blend the the two worlds. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Kind of, kind of like what Drive did. Drive, Drive to me is is that's also a, that's oh. a film bro movie. It's Drive, <laughs> by the way. I'm I would say so, so film bro for that movie. Me then. too. Uh, me like, too. Dude, Nicholas Winding Nicholas Winding Refn is a god among men. <sighs> I'll watch, I'll watch okay. any movie, bro. Dude, he can make any movie and I'll watch it. I don't even care. He's seriously like, top four, top, maybe top three film directors for me. I mean, like, he a favorite Are film director. Are you kidding me? Dude, Nicholas oh, Winding Refn one. is, like, he might, be, he might be my number one, too. I, You know, it's like Lars von Trier, Nicholas Winding Refn, and Michael Haneke are, like, those three are just like amazing. Gibberish. It sounds like gibberish to me. Oh, my God. Wait till we start getting into gosh. the Von Trier. Okay, okay, ghosts. Okay, ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Little Mermaid. Hey, you can't talk shit about David. Uh, what was it? Uh, Zucker. David Zucker. David Zucker. Those guys are fucking great. I think it's, Zucker movies. I think it's Zucker. Is it Zucker? Zucker? Yeah. I he's. I think he's sensitive about it rhyming with fucker. So, Zucker. He's like. Yeah. With. Oh, fucker. so so he's changed it. But, but it's so, no. I think it's actually pronounced like Hooker, like Zucker. Oh, Hooker. Okay. 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 He's like. I think he's oh, weird okay. about it. Yeah. But anyways, um, oh, okay. I mean, I'm not saying Ghost is a masterpiece, but it is culturally relevant. Oh yeah, master- and it's a masterpiece. And it's it's like <laughs> it's imp- <laughs> uh, it's important to point out to you that even though like there's movies that we yep. don't like, it's like there's still ones that are important to talk about. Oh right, right. yeah. Like, so sure, yeah. so yeah. that's why the our opinion section is we're not playing it up as much, and it's towards the end of the show because it's. It's not something we want to emphasize, you know. We want to emphasize what the movie did, did, and how it got made. So, so those right. are important, important so, pieces to understand. Did you guys like both these movies? I did. I love the magician. Loved the magician. Oh my god, that movie's so good. Keep it in your pants. <laughs> <laughs> I did like both movies. Dude, yeah. You guys better have liked the magician. I, you know, I, I like opinion. the magician. I, I mean, I did like it, but just compared to his other stuff. To me, just to me personally, I was like, eh. You know, like, a lot like, of people say it's his. Well, because he just came off making, I think it was the Seventh Seal, and I think it was Wild, Wild Strawberries, yeah, which are at the top. Like Seventh Seal is the top of his list almost. But see, for me, like either one of those two aren't my favorites. For for but him. in terms but, of but, in terms of 
film studies yeah. critics so and and high art film whatever yeah. yeah the like those are considered his best ones and the magician is considered his sort of underrated right. under the radar mm-hmm. masterpiece and it, i think it's like right. it's kind of like tarantino's jackie brown yeah, you know, where it's so. like a, it's a, like the perfect culmination of everything that makes Tarantino great, but yet it's not necessarily like my favorite. Tarantino it's like one film, of those things. You know? like, yeah, right. how, how do you follow up? <laughs> how do you follow up Pulp Fiction, and how do you follow up The Seventh Seal? You know what I mean? Like it's you're it's an impossibly it's hard true. place, and it's it's for how small the movie is. Um, it's it's so interesting. The characters are so interesting. I just I love the camera movement and stuff in the magician. I, I, like, I noted the camera movement too. I thought just the dolly yeah, shots and the yeah. tracking shots I thought were really deliberate and neat. Yeah, and, yeah I thought oh, it was just man. cool looking. It's so cool because like I, I I noticed it, but like just wait until you watch like Persona and the Silence and stuff like that. It, it, it some of it gets so I, I don't know his dolly work is just insane. I love how you how we can talk about his dolly work being clean and neat and stuff and then because I just watched a couple of Argento films recently oh, yeah. and his dolly work is trashy as fuck yeah I mean, his films are amazing don't get me wrong right. Suspiria is amazing but <laughs> it's like his 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 trashiness of his movies sometimes and the, the stabilization and stuff sometimes is it's yeah so bad it's, uh, so bad. I can see both of your boners from. <laughs> I can see them both. Oh, I'm trying to hide it. Don't That's why we're doing the podcast a, so we can talk about. Wear it. a longer shirt next time. <laughs> bring a pillow or something. A, m- a more opaque shirt. <laughs> I, uh, I I thought the magician. Um, I haven't seen any of his other movies, but I thought that it was like it felt so buttoned up to me. Like it felt really um, like like structured really well like like it felt like a, very well like, yeah. a, like a like a piece of film you know what i mean like because there's always like you know movies where a scene feels out of place or um something doesn't kind of mesh with the tone or something like that but i didn't really see any of that in this movie like there was everything was like it was like this weird blend of comedy and like really melodramatic stuff and um but the melodrama comedy is like yeah the melodrama works yeah i don't mean that as a as it to like downplay it or anything. I think it, I think it's great. Um, and it, it's kind of mixed with like this weird satire or like a, um, it's almost making fun of itself and it's also being itself in, in a way, which to me is just so like coming off of a movie like seven seal. That seems like a perfect movie to like, you know, I haven't seen seven seal, but I imagine it's like this masterpiece of a work that people say it's a masterpiece. So he probably feels like a phony, a little bit coming off of that like people are just like praising him for his work and he's just like i don't see it you know like yeah i don't know I well don't, i don't know i, I think I, that I, one reason works. why i kind of emphasized what bergman stated about his writing and how he how he came up with the concept is because it, it helps inform what you're saying where the reason the movie works is because that was him that was his life that shit was there mm-hmm all the pieces were there he just you know characterized them and put them into one person one character in the film and that's why it still holds up today because it's also true to like you like we talked about earlier like when there's a critic who's talking about your film and you don't have any control about what he says he just spewing crap out of his mouth and that's true back then and it's true now you know just always true yeah there's something that rings true about it and uh the other thing little 
factoid I think is really interesting about that movie is uh, Max von Sydow doesn't say a single word until just over an hour into the movie. Yeah, which is just that is unheard awesome. of. I've, yeah, never, never happened. Yeah, unheard of. That's a double. Un- <laughs> <laughs> uh, that never happens. And his Move. first words are like super melodramatic yeah, and like really yeah. like I yeah. hate them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it feels like yeah, it feels like a. You know, you know what it feels like. It feels like a bad soap opera with gothic lighting. And there's some that just works like with like gothic style lighting with. With the so because you know soap operas are like Tony and like you know they they have like, they're almost like brown you know what I mean but this is like black and white really high contrast but then it has some comedy in it I don't know it just something about it works it's funny because like the Seventh Seal is kind of similar but this this film definitely is more so it's it's more even. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas the Seventh Seal has a little bit of comedy you know stuff like that but it's not as as even keeled as this one it's like it's like almost like he mastered it perfect well his other films are a little more um i don't know the right term maybe art house for lack of a better term um i know woody allen said that if you're gonna start with bergman and you've never seen any of his movies the magician is the best place to start i can see why you'd say that because it's so even like it's it has a little bit of everything that makes bergman great so like if you preferred the kind of more like soap opera kind of funny melodrama side then you can go steer yourself towards the films that he did like that or if you really like kind of the darker more gothic side then you can go towards those sides so Uh, it's kind of cool which is that makes sense so it's kind of like it's kind of like best of both worlds. It is, like yeah. A good, like general, like here's what I can do type of thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. And it's for a movie that's black and white and that has the four by three aspect ratio, which both those things can completely turn someone off from watching a movie. Um, yep. For for having those things, it is so engaging that it's yeah. easy to watch. And I it's should, fairly short I too. I love the four thirds. I was too. I was surprised uh, that I could be as engaged as I was because I'm normally the person who's like. Oh man, this is dated. Like, yeah, yeah, I can't sit through because I love new movies that come out. Like I love them, even like studio movie, even rom. You know, I'll go see everything. But when I see old movies, sometimes I'm like, "This is fucking boring. This is the worst." It but can this be hard. Movie, I was surprised. Like at first, I was a little bit like, "All right, I'm having tr- I'm watching. Like I'm focusing." Um, but then s- around the scene where they start being interrogated, um, where you know the doctor and the magician guy are you know clashing right at the beginning um that's where i was like damn this is fucking good it is i'm uh... actually invested like i like this shit um it's it's, i was surprised it's funny because like i grew up without tv so like all the films that i grew up with were all films that my my grandpa taped for us on vhs and they were all like tmc or turner classic movie tcm turner classic movies amc so like all black and white films so i grew up with films from the 30s to like the mid 60s primarily so when it comes to like my love for film it all started with old films four thirds or the super wide screen cinemascope type stuff um so like when i watch a movie like this some of the first things I noticed, like the one, like the magician jumped out is like the camera movement because there's so many movies that were made that I saw as a kid that I, I, I understood a language of film that's so different from like the modern day film. Yet 
the magician's language of film movement and stuff is so different from what they were doing in Hollywood. So it immediately right. drew me in. Um, but I can see how some people that haven't like it's all just a black and white movie and they don't understand why they the they're compelled yeah, yeah they like yeah. even though like oh, i don't know i don't get why i was really into the magician but i, I couldn't get myself into stagecoach or whatever it's like well the camera movement is completely different and maybe that sucked you right. in or whatever so i i really i find that really cool that like it sucked you in you know like <laughs> oh, no it totally worked on me i guess all i'm saying is that the last black and white movie i watched i couldn't even I guess I don't know the Errol Morris movie that was uh, that was in color. It was one of the first color movies. I I couldn't tell you, but really, it was a long time ago. And you know, people change. I was a stupid kid, you know, when that last black and white movie I watched that was kind of old, you know, um, or foreign or strange. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm looking forward to the next one, honestly. Well, well, yeah. When you when you grow up with color and having so much flashing in your face it's hard just, to find yeah, something so much about blood you're right. and then yeah, it's hard, the, it's hard the to problem is is that right and the problem is is that narratives like i said earlier they use black and white to frame stuff in the past so you're automatically thinking well this is old tired <laughs> yeah re, you yeah. know this is this is the old stuff you know but right it's it just takes finding something to love about black it. and white because i i love black and white i i think it's Perfect. Honestly, it's what was it's that? Crisp. Uh, there's that Coen Brothers movie. Uh, it's black and white, but they shot it in color. And yeah, the man who wasn't it. there. Ah, oh, dude, yeah. that movie is Roger Deakins, man. Deakins, <laughs> the Deakmeister. He's a wizard. He's a wizard. Like Sicario. Oh my god, some of the shots in Sicario are just. And I can't. The new Blade Runner, man. Oh, oh it's gonna be crazy. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. crazy. Now I'm getting a boner. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, um, it 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 just takes understanding what well also limitations at the time but understanding what black and white is and how it works and then trying to find something to like enjoy to, about yeah. it you know you don't have to love it but there's reasons you can enjoy it yeah. you know there is a um there at the end were you going to talk about black and white stuff byron Oh, I was just going to say, I was, I'm just super fortunate that I grew up with black and white movies. Like, I just, I right. lucked out, you know, totally yeah. lucked out. Yeah. yeah, fuck yeah. That makes sense. I wish, I sort of wish I did, because I grew up with Happy Gilmore, and I love <laughs> Happy Gilmore. Love it. Um, but I wish that sometimes that I grew up with uh, movies that weren't Happy Gilmore. <laughs> okay, anyways, I wanted, I wanted to just mention one quick more thing about The Magician. At the very end of it, they're like, that's like the first time where there's like an orchestrated like thing where it's like, um, like it's like really happy and there's all these instruments playing while the entire movie it's like, there's maybe like the score is just like a guitar. It's you know dead what I mean? silent. The whole movie. It's really qu quiet. But then at the end, it's like this huge, like grand, grandiose moment uh, when the police arrive and he's like getting taken away and shit, you know? What I mean? <laughs> um, but then at the very, very end, they're all like parading down the street and they hit uh -oh. a um, a lantern, and the and they're as they're kind of going down the the street, the lantern kind of sways, and you the sound design of it is like really on top. So all you hear is like the lantern, like re, 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 mm -hmm. yeah, like going back and forth. And to me, that was like the like the best way to end this movie because it was like 
hey, I'm I'm leaving after I kind of like this. There's this grand moment of it, but then it's like there's like a, a, a like a hidden like pain almost behind like putting yourself out there and making making a movie. You know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. knowing that you're going to be like criticized for it. I don't know. <laughs> I just think thematically, it, just the theme of this movie just like really really appealed to me and struck me in a really positive and negative way but in a good way you know what i mean exactly good and, and bad ways. that's kind of why i thought these two worked together and worked as a first episode pairing because they do the themes and the characters and the structure all match movie making and they're all kind of metaphors for movie making and i mean we could spend a whole another two hours talking about the direct metaphors yeah. for things like that Right. Um, and we didn't talk about too much the opinion about the prestige, but I don't know how much there is to say that really hasn't been said. It's right. it's a really good movie. Uh, it's one that it's great I wanted to watch again. Um, I believe I think I gave it like four stars or something on Letterboxd. Um, and it's it's one that you want to watch again because well, there's lots of confusing shit that happens, and you want to know what happens. But it's also just a good movie and mm-hmm. um, great, yeah, great cinematography, great production design it feel it feels modern you know what i mean it's, yeah, yeah. it's still like still hits its i mean that movie is what like 10 years old now yeah Isn't that crazy yeah yeah the performances um, are great performances are great everything is just kind of spot on you and, know and, i think it's one of nolan's better movies um, yeah i think so I, I would say it's one of my favorite of of his i mean obviously like memento has its great place in his movies but I'd say the prestige might might be second after Memento for me at least. Right. Yeah. I think I'm ranking them. Um, it's one of those movies too that if you watched. So part of the point of this too is the movies that we choose are things you could watch back to back if you really wanted to, yeah, and it's yeah. a really interesting mm-hmm. form and way of watching movies doing the double feature style. Um, but it's one of those movies that when you're watching the magi- the magician, and if you find yourself not liking it, if you're not into the black and white, if you just can't get into the movie, jumping right into the prestige is like a, a nice palate cleanser almost. You know what I mean? Because it's very watchable, yeah. very engaging. It's mm-hmm. Nolan. It's, it's people you like to see on screen. And, right. Hugh you know, Jackman. Exactly. Like, who doesn't like Hugh Jackman? <laughs> exactly. I want to meet that person and just slap you know. them. You know what I mean? <laughs> and Michael Caine, dude. I think oh, Michael Caine just... Oh, yeah. He kind of gets overshadowed, but man, that guy is a boss actor. That guy sure. is amazing. Yeah. Um, he is the best. Yeah. So that takes us right to the end of the show. Um, I think on a different episode where things are a little as we kind of work our way and work out the kinks, um, this could be a time where, you know, we discuss other movies that we might've watched during the week. Um, stuff like that. Just kind of a quick little, like watch this. It was kind of good, you know, check it out type of deal. Yeah, What, what um, have you guys watched? Uh, I've been watching, we got, I watched a couple of Argento films. I need to finish deep red. I'm right at the end of it. Um, and Suspiria, which, like, dude, the soundtrack for Suspiria is... I have it on my phone now, and I've been Goblin. listening to it on repeat. It's so good. Goblin is so Goblin good. Goblin is epic. Um, and then... What the I, fuck you guys are even talking about? <laughs> watch. Just, just watch Suspiria. Suspiria is epic. Or, or go to YouTube and search for Sus- foreign, Suspiria. Foreign search for the soundtrack of Suspiria. and As, a, as an American, if I don't understand it, I'm just going to choose to not like it. Oh, man. Oh, my oh, God. Get, get, get out, out of so here. much. 
<laughs> Get uh, out of here. We watched, Take your boners and leave. <laughs> I had a movie night with some friends, and we watched um, Deadpool again. And dead, Deadpool's, I mean, it's a fun yeah. It's a fun movie. It's not great, but it's it's. La- I laugh a lot at it and stuff like that. So it's it's. Yeah, it's good. I yeah, it's a fun ride. I only I only saw it once. I don't, I don't care to see. It I, again, I bought it on. Good. Well, I think my girlfriend bought it on Blu-ray, but because she enjoyed it too. So um, nice. That's kind of what I watched. I watched The Wailing a couple weeks ago. That's a really interesting movie, Korean movie. Mm. So it's kind of out of your realm already. Um, but yeah, it's, what what is it? Is that the good one or the bad Korea? Which one? that's the good korea (laughs) south korea but it's like a it's kind of a weird it's a weird mishmash of paranormal and demon horror and kind of body horror a little bit and yeah it was good i watched the revenant rewatched the revenant kind of a couple weeks ago too and that movie is always six out of five amazing the most recent movie i watched was split and yeah, I've heard good things about that. You guys that. watch Split? I, I have haven't not, seen no. Split yet. No. You guys watch? Uh, are you guys into Shyamalan's earlier work? Yeah, I haven't. Uh, like, honestly, I haven't rewatched like his movies? stuff as. A I haven't seen all of them, but you know, Unbreakable, The Village, you know, Signs. Um, I haven't okay. seen Signs Six yet. I'm, I'm telling both of you guys, right now, go see this movie tomorrow. If you like Shyamalan's early movie, early work, go see it tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. My buddy told me that. He's like, oh, man, just saw Split so good. And it's like, no. No, that Shyamalan stinks. Dude, just go see it. I swear. Don't look at spoilers online. Just, just Keith, put your phone away. Put your phone away. <laughs> Don't look at spoilers. Motherfucker, put it away. Um, and anyways, I watched the movie, sat through the whole thing, and I, my mind just exploded at the very end of the movie. So, Oh, I already go. know all the spoilers. of them. I listened to... Film don't drunk tell Byron. And, no, I didn't tell him. <laughs> no, don't tell him. I have I no idea. No, no, no. I listen to a podcast. Don't, don't. I listen to film drunk podcast a lot. And <laughs> listen to me. I'm not, no. no, listen. I don't listen. They spoil. Listeners, don't listen to him. They spoil stuff, and I, I listen podcast. to spoilers a lot. So it's it's one of those things where yeah, if 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 yeah, what yeah, it's hard to say too much about the you end of that movie. Say, it's just, you know, everyone expects a surprise or a twist ending at the end of his movies. And I think this is the first time where I don't think anyone ever would be able to guess what the twist ending was. I think it's, it's oh, cool. when, I mean, obviously he, he did a, that with um, Six uh, Sense and, you know, a, a lot of his movies have that twist. But he executes the twist in a way that is so different than what you'd expect um, that ah, dude I'm excited I'm excited for his next movie that comes out and I can't say why that's, no <laughs> that's why, why I did I, what I did here was that he revitalized so he revitalized his own Don't. twist oh sweet essentially yes, yeah yeah because so, his, his just go see it yeah just go see it I'm gonna have to go, go check it tomorrow. out yeah yeah it sounds it seemed like it was good I I tend it's bad because you don't need to do this but I tend to steer away from PG-13 movies just I don't know I just usually don't like them but I definitely will be opening myself up more. You don't like uh, Batman Begins or uh, The Dark Knight? Yeah, no, those are good. I mean, there's definitely movies that I watch that are PG-13. I just generally... (laughs) Is it PG-13? I think so. I think so. I think, right? The Prestige? I'm pretty sure it's R. But either way, like, I don't... Uh I don't know. I don't generally watch those type of movies. The Prestige rating. 
It's PG-13. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, there's some PG-13 that I like. I just had to. I just had to. Uh, well, well, this brings us to the end of the podcast. Um, so if you have any questions, suggestions, or opinions, go ahead and send an email to btbpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, next week, we'll be covering Alfred Hitchcock's Rope and Alfonso Coron's Children of Men, focusing on the infamous long take in Sweet. movies. I, ex- I have not yeah. seen Rope, so I'm pumped. I've always wanted to watch it. I'm so glad we're doing this podcast, because now I get to like watch these movies that I've been meaning to watch. You know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's the and goal. I have yeah. to. I can't put it off anymore. <laughs> Perfect. Because, you know, you know, I saw Split, like like on the on the fourth that was like five that was the last movie i watched besides the movie i watched today because i i didn't rewatch the prestige because i've seen it like 10 times like mm-hmm. um i've been playing zelda <laughs> that's it i'm not even kidding but like my girlfriend's I mean, in grad school and she's busy all the time and i'm just sitting at home <laughs> it's kind of the best it's so good yeah it's such a fun game uh, so that's fun. what i've heard yeah. all right Alright, thanks for listening and happy viewing. Peace.